Domino Biscuits Ave Satana. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this week's episode of Watch If You Dare. This is your spooky boy, Aaron Mansfield, coming at you this week. And I have my co-host, Derek Devereaux Smith, with us as well. Say hey to everybody, Derek. Yo, yo, yo. I've been singing that Latin at my cats all week. Oh, yeah. And we have an exciting episode. We are going to be discussing 1976's The Omen with special guest Crystal Rivers. Say hey to everybody, Crystal. Hi. So we're going to discuss the movie in just a little bit, but let's quickly discuss things that we have consumed lately that are vaguely horror related. So actually, Crystal, if you want, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about why you're into horror or what you enjoy about horror. And if there's anything that you've checked out recently that you want to tell people about. Yeah. So my introduction to horror was mostly through the scary stories you tell in the dark, which my cousin used to read to me in bed. Um, We'd scare the bejesus out of ourselves. And I moved from that to Goosebumps. And when I read all the Goosebumps, I had a great librarian who started giving me Stephen King, probably way too young to read Stephen King. Um, You're never too (laughs) young for Stephen King. But yeah, I am still very obsessed with Stephen King and kind of any horror shows and movies that take a little bit of uh, direction from Stephen King. Like, the first season of American Horror Story was very, like, King-esque and still consuming, you know, all of his media that he keeps writing, like, five years, so. I don't know that I've talked to you about this yet, but have you read The Outsider, which is one of his, like, more, like, in the last year kind of recent books? I probably haven't, because I have a, I have a huge backlog with Stephen King, because he's written so much, and I just, maybe, like, two years ago, finally convinced myself to read it because I knew it would be a lot, and it was a lot. (laughs) But um, the most recent one I think I've read was Dr. Sleep, because I had to read that one as a companion. I think we've discussed Dr. Sleep before, like, once the preview came out. I'm super pumped about that movie, honestly. I like Mike Flanagan's stuff a lot. I think the casting is great, and I'm really curious to see what he does, considering that it looks like it is definitely playing on the actual Kubrick movie, and not just going off in its own direction to be its own thing so I'm curious to see what he does with that right especially because of like King's feelings on the Kubrick movie yeah which have mellowed a bit over the years but like that King is so involved with Dr. Sleep and they're also referencing the Kubrick movie is very interesting to me to see how that all matches together it could very well go like Star Wars with the prequels where Stephen King is kind of like George Lucas he is the genius who came up with all these concepts Um, you have to respect him for that but you have to wonder if his involvement with this movie and his past feelings towards the Kubrick shining if that'll cause any issues but yeah you're right he has come around on that movie since then I mean even then Mansfield wasn't it true that when that when the shining first came out it got critically panned oh yeah it wasn't until later that everyone realized it was kind of a masterpiece oh yeah I mean it literally won Razzies when it came out I mean it was not at that's all insane like a regarded movie which yeah I mean, in hindsight to us, it is insane. I mean, that's one of those movies that I grew up hearing, like, constantly. Like, that is one of the scariest movies you'll ever watch. And I definitely saw it at too young of an age, because it played on, like, fucking TNT and TBS all the time. So I just remember watching it and getting, like, sucked into (laughs) it, you know? Yeah, I'm curious to see how this new one plays out. The reason I brought up The Outsider... 
A, that book was really good, but B, they're about to do an HBO miniseries on that that's supposed to start this fall, and it's going to have Ben Mendelsohn and Jason Bateman in it. That's And it deals with, like, tulpas, which are like... Uh, you know what Topals are from, like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Twin Peaks shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know what to- yeah. Um But, it's, like, doppelgangers. Gotcha, gotcha. But, like, doppelgangers that are kind of tied to, like, First Nations mythology. Gotcha. So, I'm kind of curious about that one. You've been reading Stephen King since a very young age. I honestly, like, I've mentioned this on the show before, I think, but I've always been really into Stephen King movies, for the most part. Not, I mean, not all of them are great, obviously, but I've never really been able to get into, like, Stephen King's books until this year when I started having a commute for my job, I burned through The Shining, Doctor Sleep, It, Carrie, Pet Cemetery, The Outsider, The Stand. Like I've I've burned through an insane amount of his stuff because for some reason it's all kind of finally clicked with me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just because I'm older and I can relate to the situations a little bit more, but like I I'm definitely on that wavelength now more than I ever was. I think with Stephen King, like there's two connection points. Like you either can connect as a child because I think the way yeah. he writes children is incredible compared to a lot of other authors. Like, he really gives them a whole life and personality. And that's really interesting to read as a kid who's, like, kind of... People don't consider you that much. Yeah, totally. You know? Yeah. Or there's, like, an entry point when you're, like, around... When you're older, when you're our age, like, when you're in your 30s, where he was when he was writing a lot of his original stuff and dealing with a lot of the, like, getting older but still figuring everything out. Yeah. I mean, Pet Cemetery is one of those that I just remember my head like the movie being so creepy and blah 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 95 percent of that book has nothing to do with the supernatural shit at mm. all and matter of fact like other than like the very beginning with the jogger nothing supernatural happens in that book until like the last 50 pages mm-hmm. and you know heather and i've been married for a few years we don't have kids yet but there's still something in that book that like really hit me emotionally and i don't think that, that story would have resonated with me if I'd read it a decade ago at all. Right. Um, and another one that I've read recently as well was Revival and just that main character's kind of journey throughout that story and like his life, bits and pieces of that resonated with me because I've either gone through similar things or I've known people in very, very similar situations. So like you said, I mean, his characters are just insanely relatable in multiple ways. Yeah, definitely. I still want to read Revival. It, that's one that Heather sent me and was like, hey, have you read this yet? You would really love it. Read it. Yeah. I need to get on that. It's interesting because I'm kind of the same way as you are, Mansfield, where I've kind of come around on Stephen King at a little bit of a later age in my 20s. But even then, I actually have really enjoyed his collection of short stories. My two favorite novels that he's written are Night Shift, which is like his collection of short stories, I think from like the early 90s or mid to early 90s, maybe even 80s. And his most recent one, The Bazaar of Bad Dreams, which came out, I think, in like 2013 or something like that. Those have been my favorite novels novels that he's written. Also to Crystal, you had mentioned growing up with scary stories to tell in the dark. So interesting thing is that whole phenomenon kind of passed me up as a kid. I had a couple friends I remember that had that book, but they never really like talked about it too much. And I just missed out on that book entirely. And I didn't find out about it until I think I was either in high school or maybe even college. And um, it's funny now that it's coming back in a pop culture mindset, especially with the movie at the time that's recording the movies like what five days 
days out, four days out from release. Are you excited about that movie? Because it is directed by the guy who does Autopsy of Jane Doe, which might be the scariest movie we've watched to me so far still. Yeah, I haven't seen any of the director's work, but Aaron has talked about how great his stuff is. And it's produced by Del Toro, who has been kind of like a champion of the movie the whole time. And Pan's Labyrinth is one of my favorite movies ever. So like I am on board with anything that Guillermo del Toro kind of gives the seal of approval. So we'll see, but I'm I'm really excited to see. Yeah, we were talking about it last night. I definitely remember reading the scary stories to tell in the dark books, but the one that we brought up as well was Goosebumps. And I was telling Crystal because she was like heavy reading into those when we were talking about it. But I, like you, Derek, I was definitely kind of like too old by the time I got to Goosebumps because I think I had just read other stuff like the scary story to tell in the dark books already. And so the Goosebumps books didn't quite resonate with me at the age that I got to them. But I was also still too young for the like Fear Street series. So right, R.L. Stein's right. stuff is kind of like, I, I missed the boat on his stuff, but it's stuff that like, who knows, I might go back to later because you could, as an adult, pull up a Goosebumps book now and read it in like an hour. So They're still really good. I just reread the first four recently because my nephew's 11 and I felt like he was like finally old enough for Goosebumps. So I found my original four and like reread them to make sure they weren't too scary for an 11 year old yeah and they are still pretty great yeah i think i read about like 15 of his books when i was a kid i was totally was on that boat yeah i missed out on the scary stories uh altogether which is kind of insane in retrospect with how many people love those stories um and grew up with them so well that was one of those things that like i didn't realize there was a fandom around it i thought it was just this thing that me and my cousin did when i would stay with them over the summer you know it wasn't until we started talking about the movie that I was like, oh, like a lot of people read these books and were really terrified by them. I think the fandom really exploded with the internet, to be honest with you, because I think it was one of those things where not like Harry Potter or Pokemon, where it kind of surged in popularity at the rise of the internet, but it was kind of one of those things where everyone seems to have read those books and maybe word of mouth passed it around or siblings passed it down to each other or whatever. I feel like it wasn't until the internet where people started sharing like images of the creepy pictures in them that they became super popular again so i don't know none of my family ever owned any of them which is kind of crazy because i know between me and my sisters we had a lot of goosebumps and other horror related content around the house well derek how about you have you read played watched anything horror related lately so unlike last episode i do have a good bit to talk about so starting off with comic books it was over a month ago now but robert kirkman dropped walking dead 193 and he dropped it as a surprise that this is the end of the walking dead period last issue like that's it yeah it was revealed the week of the release i don't know i can't remember if it was revealed release day that wednesday i think it came out on july 3rd but yeah it is the last issue he ended it and it's an exercise issue the last four or five pages are him talking about writing the walking dead and how this is the end and i'm kind of glad he did it I'm a little surprised he didn't go all the way to 200, but he, he said this was the time. This is I, I felt like this was the right time to do it, so I did it. And I'm kind of glad he did it because 
kind of like the TV show, the comic book for me was starting to kind of, it was never a bad comic book. It was always quality, but it was always, it was starting to get to be like, this is more of the same thing over and over again. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I quit reading it because it just became this group of people gets to a place that seems safe. They meet some new people. A lot of people die because, of course, the zombies catch up to them or overrun where they're at and then they go on the run for another few issues and then they find another safe place and just kind of rinse repeat that and I think like once that happened for like the third time and it started getting kind of wild like with the dude and the tiger I was just kind of like all right um I think I might be good on this for now yeah and when they like met him they started establishing like all the communities and so they had this sort of similar community that's been around for the last like several issues which is nice towards the end but even then this last storyline was all around them discovering yet another newer community but I gotta say this last issue was the perfect ending to me at least it was a good ending and the whole time I was waiting for that like Robert Kirkman kick you in the dick half the people die out of nowhere things go to shit moment and kind of minor spoilers I guess uh, if you want to skip ahead a couple seconds but it never really happens it's just a good quality ending to this really dark storyline and it gives kind of a good send off to a lot of characters especially Carl Um, and Carl was probably my favorite character in the whole series so I was very happy with it so I don't know about the rest of the series like since issue 100 when they uh, had Negan come in um, and on like take it or leave it if you're not going to like The Walking Dead then you're probably not going to like those issues but I would even if like you stopped reading Walking Dead back in the day pick up issue 193 whether you can get it on I I think they're about to drop a second printing or second or third printings have already dropped but pick it up give it a read you don't have to really go back and read any of the old stuff if you just want to read a really good ending and conclusion to Carl's storyline then there you go on top of that with comics so DC has sort of started their own like mini series I guess that's kind of like their version of Marvel Zombies it's called and I'm not shitting you it's called DC as in uh, the letters D and C ceased so it's like capital D capital C East okay so DC's <laughs> yeah and instead of Marvel Zombies which Marvel Zombies I think the first series started kind of like in media res where the zombies had pretty much already taken over the earth and it just follows like the zombified heroes trying to look for food sources this one starts at the beginning and yeah I know it's another zombie apocalypse kind of storyline but it does it in clever ways where the source of the plague of zombies isn't a zombie virus it's literally the anti-life equation ah okay yeah because like dark side invades earth he wants to get the anti-life equation he winds up getting the anti-life equation but it's not what he expected he winds up basically fucking over all of apocalypse killing himself cyborg barely escapes apocalypse cyborg is zombified by the anti-life equation he hooks himself up to the internet and anyone who looks at a screen with the anti-life equation becomes like a zombie basically and the anti-life equation can be transferred either by like bites or if you look at the internet basically (laughs) and it just goes from there and then like shit goes to hell superman and a bunch of other heroes are kind of all hold up at the Daily Planet trying to figure out what to do and I think it's on the third or fourth issue now and you know it has 
all the tired tropes, but it's just written so well that I'm having a fun time with it. So I actually do recommend this one, even though it is yet another zombie apocalypse kind of literature. You know, because I don't know, like, I know what the antimatter equation in general is from DC, but I'm not, like, dug into it enough. I'm just not as much of a DC fan overall outside of Batman. But in my head, I'm just, I immediately just went back to the, like, wait, Superman's just holed up in the Daily Planet trying to figure out, just fly around and punch them all, right? That's Superman, right? Just fly around and punch them all and just, like, punch their brains out. But wait, okay, if they're just trying to undo it, okay, that's different, yeah. Yeah, so he's trying to keep Lois and his son safe as well as Robin and a couple of other heroes. He's still going out and exploring because he's Superman. Nothing, uh, at least that we know of yet, can puncture his skin. So he's just going around saving people and trying to figure stuff out while everyone else is kind of, like, at the safe haven of the Daily Planet and he's bringing people back to the Daily Planet. So it just becomes... Romero's Land of the Dead, where everybody's holed up in a skyscraper. <laughs> it's kind of sort of becoming that way, yeah. But yeah, the anti-life equation normally is just, it's what Darkseid is always kind of like after. It's like the... It's the Infinity Gauntlet. It's basically the Infinity Gauntlet, but evil, <laughs> where the Infinity Gauntlet's just kind of pure primal force. The anti-life equation's literally like the complete opposite of the embodiment of hope. Yeah, so. just just like Thanos is purple and Darkseid is gray. Same thing, right? <laughs> there you go. Same thing. <laughs> also, some other stuff I've been reading. So I started a book called uh, We Sold Our Souls. It was written by uh, Grady Hendrix. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of him before. I need to check out some of his stuff. Yeah, so he uh, kind of got some popularity with my best friend's Exorcism, which I also had that book and I haven't read it yet. And he has another book. I think it's called Horror Store. He's kind of a more modern horror writer that has kind of risen in prominence in the last couple of years. We Sold Our Souls came out last year to pretty critical acclaim. And I'm about 150 pages into it right now. And it's solid. Basically kind of follows an old uh, metalhead, uh, this woman who used to be in a metal band. And she's trying to reunite with the rest of her bandmates because one of their bandmates basically was able to kind of go on to become like super famous like Kiss or something yeah. like that and all of them were left to rot basically there was a certain night where they were supposed to be signing a contract to go on to this superstardom and then they all somehow winded up getting screwed out of it and they're finding out that they don't remember what happened that night and so the mystery is kind of slowly unfolding right now there's touches of supernatural elements being hinted at I'm not quite far enough in the story yet to figure out whether or not like it's going to go full supernatural I have a feeling it has something to do with like them literally selling their souls when they didn't know it in order for this one guy to go on to superstardom yeah that makes sense so yeah I am uh, I'm having a blast with that book it's been a super fun read and if that sounds like something up your alley check it out my best friend's exorcism his horror book from 2016 is supposedly really damn good once I start reading that one I'll get back to y'all and let you know how I think that is other than that I have some other stuff but I'll save it for our next episode um, I don't want to take up too much time. So, Mansfield, what have you got for us? Um, Not much. I've been kind of busy with work and life and everything, but uh, I managed to squeeze in a few movies. So, I rewatched Hannibal. Kino just put out a 4K Blu-ray of it, and um, I picked it up because it was stupid cheap. And I like... Okay, I say I like the Hannibal Lecter series a lot. Sounds of the Lambs is kind of one of my all-timers. I really love Michael Mann's Manhunter. From there... I like Red Dragon well enough. I like Hannibal well enough. Hannibal's probably my least favorite of the movies, I guess. And I still need to get back into the actual TV series. It's so good. I watched most of the first season, but it got 
real grim and I had a real hard time getting past that because with Sounds of the Lambs you have such a strong protagonist and she's just such a good light in the darkness and the problem is Will Graham as a character is already so fucking deep in the darkness so there's just not a lot of light or levity to that series that I could find but I need to go back to it especially now that I've rewatched the Hannibal movie and kind of did some reading on the book because I have not actually read that book yet. I read Sounds of the Lambs and I read Red Dragon, but I've not read the Hannibal book because I heard it was just kind of ludicrous. <laughs> Bro, like, okay, so in the movie, there's the Mason Verger character who was a pedophile that he, like, was treating when he was a doctor, and he convinced him to, like, cut off his own face and feed it to these dogs, and he basically went mad and became kind of this disfigured gajillionaire who was seeking revenge in the Hannibal movie. In the book, he also has a, like, bodybuilding twin sister who is a lesbian who, with her partner, like, want to basically use his semen to inseminate her partner to create an heir for the billionaire family fortune, and she ends up killing him, ultimately, with, like, an electric eel up his ass, and- Fucking all, like, what? Or no, no, no. She puts a cattle prod up his ass to stimulate him to, like, ejaculate to get his semen and then shoves an electric eel that he keeps as a pet down his throat. In the movie, it's just like, oh, push wheelchair into pigs. Like, that's it. The the book is apparently (laughs) fucking wild. And I read that the TV show, even though from a timeline standpoint, none of it matches up, but the TV show does kind of go into some of that and at least set some of it up. Like, Michael Pitt from Boardwalk Empire, he's Mason Verger in the show, Catherine Isabel from Ginger Snaps, and American Mary is the sister. So I know that the show adapts some of that storyline, but maybe doesn't get further. I mean, you've seen they the whole show. They adapt most of that storyline. It does? Okay. Because I haven't read the book, but all of what you're just saying sounds... It's not quite as ridiculous, okay. but it is very similar in its, like, purpose. There's no, like, electric eels down the throat or, like, cattle prods. No, but I think the cattle prod, I want to say, I don't know if it's the cause of his death, but has something to do. I can't remember exactly right now, but I do know that it's somewhere kind of in between the book and the Hannibal movie. Okay, gotcha. Um, Because I have seen the Hannibal movie, and I've seen, like, halfway through the last season of Hannibal. Because, like you are saying, it is very dark. But as long as we're following Will, I was 100% on board. Because I have, like, a lot of empathy for Will. But the last season, it goes back and forth between Will and Hannibal's perspective. Yeah. So I got to an episode that was all through Hannibal's POV, and I just had to stop. It was just too much. But I do want to eventually finish it, because the last season is supposed to be kind of like the telling of the Red Dragon storyline. Which I've seen that movie, and I've also seen the Michael Mann that's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. We just watched that, like, a year ago, I think. Because it has uh, Billy, what's his name, that plays Grisham on CSI. It's also William a Steppenwolf Ensemble member. Yeah, yeah, Billy Peterson. And my mom loves him, so it was like on at a hotel. Me and my he's, mom stayed at and we watched good it. good in that movie, great. man. There was like a period in his career right there where he was just breaking. And between that and Freakins to Live and Die in L.A., like he was 
really good, and I kind of hate that he just ended up on CSI for like 12 seasons. Well, he's an ensemble <laughs> member at Steppenwolf in Chicago, and yeah. he's great on stage. Yeah, I've, I've heard nothing but good things about like, the plays and now. stuff he does. Yeah. I, I kind of wish he had had a better film career before just jumping right into TV forever. Yeah. Um, I think that that, like, I don't think he ever really wanted to have a film or TV career from that, what... I could see that, yeah. I've heard he, like, enjoys theater. Yeah. So, like, CSI paid for him to do theater for however long he freaking wants, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) That works. Yeah, I bought Hannibal, the complete series, on Blu-ray a while back because I found, like, a used copy on eBay for, like, 12 bucks. So I just went ahead and bought it and just haven't watched it yet. From what I seem to remember reading, I think the plan was for the fourth season to do an adaptation of Red Dragon, but did they just, did they find out that they were getting canceled and they just tried to, like, shove it into the last part of the third season? It's, like, the latter half of the third season, I want to say. And I don't think it fully adapted it. Like I said, I haven't seen, I haven't gotten to that part okay. yet. I know um, they cast Richard Armitage as Dollar Hyde, the Tooth Fairy Killer, but I didn't know, like, how far, I didn't know if it was, like, a fucking Dark Knight kind of tease, where, like, at the end of the third season, they were just like, oh, and there's this new guy, they call him the Tooth Fairy Killer. And it could be like that, because I mean, a little bit spoilers, but, like, at the end of season two, people have finally realized that Hannibal is awful. Oh, okay. But he doesn't get caught. So season three, it's just him on the run. The beginning, yeah, them trying to catch him. Okay, um, I that haven't makes sense, gotten. He would have to be in prison, right. before Red Dragon. Okay, I yeah. haven't gotten to the point where he's captured. But I do know in season three he's captured. So I'm gonna try to push through because, like I said, it'll get easier once I'm not having to watch his POV. Because the actor yeah. is incredible, but man, that's a dark POV to watch. Like, like I said, I'm really shocked that this show was on like network TV because. I, like I think I got to the episode with the killer who was building totem poles out of bodies, and I kind of was just like, "All right, <laughs> I, yeah. I checked out a little bit. This is a little like much for even me." But I need to go back and finish it because I really wanted to get to like Jillian Anderson jumping into right, the show. Right, I was just about to ask if you got um, to Jillian. Yeah, and I hadn't gotten to any of that yet. So that that might be like the next TV thing that I start. Other than that, I rewatched Vamp with Grace Jones and that one's always kind of fun. It's like the right level of 80s, you know, yuck yuck college guys being douchebags kind of movie, but then just them completely getting their comeuppance and being murdered by vampire strippers. And Grace Jones is fucking wild in that movie. It's great. Like her makeup and hair and everything and the performance that she gives that has zero dialogue. It's just her like hissing at people. That movie's super fun. And then not not at all horror related, but Heather and I went and saw Tarantino's new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And the only reason I bring it up is because the Manson murders are specifically kind of the background thing that's going on in the movie. It's not at all like horror related otherwise. It's just kind of about the history and culture of Hollywood in the late 60s and kind of everything that leads up to that event and the things and people involved and it does go exactly where I expected it to go ultimately I 
Really enjoy the performances. The music is always as great. Um, the cinematography's good. I think the problem that I have with it is the same problem I've had with his last few, is that he still has yet to really find a new editor since Sally Minky passed. That's kind of on his wavelength, because this movie had a lot of fat that could have been trimmed. And when I say fat, you could literally leave every scene in that movie, but I don't need to see somebody drive up to their house, stop their car, get out of their car, walk around their car, open the door, get something out of the car, walk all the way up the driveway to their house, walk in their house, see another shot of them walking into the house, putting their bags down. Like, I don't need any of that. Cut all that stuff, trim all that dead space. I don't feel like it added anything to the movie. It doesn't build tension. It doesn't do much of anything. It just felt like coverage that they left in because, oh my God, Tarantino and Richardson like put this visual stuff together, so we need to leave it all in. But the performances are good. Damon Harriman, who plays Charles Manson in the movie, is in it for like all of 30 seconds, which kind of surprised me. Um, it focuses more on all of his followers, ultimately. But I'm kind of curious to see him playing an older Manson in season two of Mindhunters when that drops on Netflix in a couple of weeks. He's playing Manson in that as well? Yeah, so from what I kind of heard through the rumor mill, and who knows like how much of this is true, Tarantino and Fincher like know each other, are buds. Fincher has been involved with Sony forever. This new Tarantino movie was actually done by Sony now that he's like stepped away from the Weinsteins, and he literally just hung out with them for an afternoon in the editing bay while Fincher was working on season two of Mindhunters, and Tarantino was just like, wait, who is this guy that's playing Manson? Cool. I need somebody to play Manson in my movie. Let me just call him up. And that was that. So, you know, this was definitely like Manson at the time in 69 Younger. And this is the Mindhunter show is going to be like late 70s, early 80s, somewhere in there. Um, So he's going to be older. There's a brief shot of him in the trailer that came out for that show. So I'm kind of curious to see what he ends up doing there. But overall, the Tarantino movie was fun. It's definitely kind of a what if story. I mean, hence the title. But overall, Overall, like I think a lot of people maybe will get into that whole story just because true crime is so big right now. And I think a lot of people are just still not completely aware of the fact that Manson didn't actually murder anybody and he was not really involved directly with the killings other than saying like, go do it. You know, so I'm kind of curious to see, like, what that looks like in the next couple of months as people are watching that movie and checking it out. It had a good opening weekend, but I don't expect it to resonate with a ton of people just because of the length and the subject matter. Right. But I think a lot of people are probably going to check it out on home video afterward. I'm curious to see if there's, like, any kind of spike in, like, Manson-related stuff after this, just because it's been a while since anything related to him has been talked about, I guess. To this day, I think my favorite Manson coverage, and I know we talk about them a lot on this podcast, but I got to give them credit again is uh, last podcast. I think they did a three-parter on Manson. Yeah. And their three-parter on Manson and the Manson family was top-notch. It was hilarious, but as well is uh, super informative. The story was not hilarious, but Henry, no, no, no. H- Henry's, Henry's like <laughs> desert spider imitation of Charles Manson was fucking yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. The Henry's imitations of him were hilarious, but the story itself is pretty fucked. 
but it's it, it was super informative and I really enjoyed their three part series on it. Another thing about Mindhunter that always kind of tripped me up every time like I look up stuff about it is that not only is uh, David Fincher an executive producer, but Charlize Theron is also an executive producer on that show. Did you know that? No, I didn't actually. That, I mean, that doesn't surprise me. She's been involved in producing stuff before, but I don't, I'm curious like what her connection is to that show directly. Yeah, I kind of want to find that out myself now. I'm very curious, but... Did you watch the first season? No, I still haven't watched the first season. I, I do need to. You should check it out because, again, going back to the last podcast, they have covered literally everybody on that show. The whole idea is like it's following a fictionalized version of the guys who created the FBI serial killer profiling system. And so it's them going to these famous serial killers in jail and talking to them and interviewing them. So it's people like Ed Kemper. So it's, it's definitely people that the show has covered before. And so it's interesting to see, like, after hearing them, like, doing glib impressions of these idiots, it's kind of interesting to see, like, another actor putting their spin on it because it is a heightened version of that person. But I think the most chilling one is the guy that does Ed Kemper, and that's the one who, like, gets all the attention from that show. But yeah, big old bumblebutt Ed Kemper just being like, oh, yeah, and then, uh, you know, cut my mom's head off and, you know, had sex with it. And you're just like, wait, 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 wait what the fuck are you? No, don't want to hear this right now. Didn't Ben and Henry, like, on one of their Patreon episodes or just one of their side story episodes, didn't they interview the actor who played one of the serial killers? Um, I think I remember that. They might have, but I, I haven't listened to any of their, like, Patreon stuff. The guy was hilarious, like, as an actor, and they even talked about it because he seemed like he was a comedian normally, and they talked about the mind space he had to get in to, like, turn into the serial killer he was portraying. Yeah, and same thing with Damon Harriman. I'm curious, did he do any method prep or weirdness for playing Charles Manson? Did he just, like, go out in the middle of the desert and, like, live in a tent for six months or some dumb shit? But, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. Season two of that drops in, like, two, three weeks, so. Yeah, I really liked season one. I didn't so much like the ending of it, but I think I was looking for a happy ending in a show that never promised me a happy ending yeah. with that character. So I'm excited to watch the next season, kind of knowing what my expectations are going in. Yeah. That, you know, the main character is like going to be a little psychologically fucked from, yeah. you know, listening to all these serial killers. Like he's kind of sacrificing his mental stability a little bit to get these profiles. Yeah. And that's definitely something that you hear a lot from the people who do that kind of work is just eventually you hit that breaking point where like you get past being horrified and then you get into like having a really dark sense of humor about it and then you eventually come right back around to just being like broken and horrified again and it's kind of hard to come back from that so at yeah. some points you get a little bit like Dennis Reynolds from yeah. Sunny. <laughs> okay well let's go ahead and kind of move on from here with a little icebreaker so we were going back and forth on like what specific question to discuss real quick um, whether we should talk about hey do we have any instances of evil bad children that we've had to deal with or any kind of weird paranormal coincidence type things that we've experienced in our lives. So I think what we decided was let's just torque Nilo's dose and just do both and just whichever one you might have a good story for tell. So again, Crystal, we'll start with you. Do you have any stories of super bad, just like you would swear they are the Antichrist demon children or any stories about like really strange paranormal coincidences in your life? Or both. Or both. <laughs> 
Sure. So I've spent a, a large portion of my adult life as a nanny. So my most recent, actually, before I just took the restaurant job that I'm at now, I had a, a family of two boys. One's one and a half, one's three. And the one that's one and a half is your typical one and a half year old. He cries a lot, but is also like very easily soothed. Yeah. His three-year-old brother went the gambit of human emotions from I hate you, you're the worst thing ever, I wish you would leave, to like 20 minutes later hugging on me and being like, I love you, you're so great. (laughs) And just mood swings that were so extreme. Usually like when I get there not wanting their mom to leave to getting to the point where it's like, I like having you here. That's normal. But like the I hate you go away to like, I love you so much. I'm so glad glad you're here. I haven't experienced that crazy of a mood swing and it wasn't just throughout the day and not just related to my actions. Not just when I told the kid no, he would just decide sometimes, oh no, I hate you. I wish you would not be here. Which sometimes felt almost like he was saying I wish you would die, but he never did but it was just, you're a lot. It got close. (laughs) For a young child Um, who couldn't conceive of like that idea it was basically there. (laughs) Right, and he is the kind of kid you would cast in a horror movie because he's like angelic looking beautiful blue eyes very white with blonde hair but just <laughs> looks so cute but like you could pan that camera to him and get that like kind of damien look of uh-oh you messed up <laughs> like, I'm, just imagining, I'm just imagining the kid from um house by the cemetery just bob 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 <laughs> just zoom up on his face latin chanting starts <laughs> slow smile that job was hard my emotions went all over over the place because I was like having to be like oh he hates me I'm gonna try to like get him to a good place again or like he would be like way too clingy and I'd be like I can't (laughs) deal with it. Supernatural stuff I think just kind of the normal amount of stuff and I've stayed in like some old New Orleans hotels that definitely had some weirdness going on. Yeah like I'm not the kind of person that believes in any of that stuff but there's something about some places in New Orleans where you just feel like you just walked under like a cold spray of water all of a sudden. Mm. There's just something off about some of the energy there for whatever reason. So, like I said, I don't don't believe in any of that stuff, but there are definitely places where you just feel, like, off for sure. I do kind of believe Steppenwolf has a friendly ghost that used to be an elevator attendant because the elevator for me specifically not for everyone that works there but 80% of the time that I walk up to the two elevators it opens automatically and no one has pressed a button (laughs) it just happens so frequently and like only for me and when I'm with someone else it doesn't happen as frequently I took to naming him George and like was very nice to him but I don't know if that's Uh, legit but I felt like if it is I might as well be nice yeah, so. I mean, it's better than a friendly ghost, I guess, if ghosts are real. Well, now I'm picturing the bartender from The Shining that always, like, appear, uh, appearing to you one day and be like, uh, ma'am, you've always been here. <laughs> Uh, what about you, Derek? So I, I know I've touched on like the PICU a few times, which is both possibly evil children and supernatural elements wrapped into one. Um, I can't remember if I shared this in some degree or not in an earlier episode. Well before I started working there, the PICU used to be on a different floor of the hospital, and it, it's a high-level PICU, so they take care of really sick children. You know, sometimes patients die. It's just that's what happens. And a certain patient died from a terminal illness, and shit got weird in that room almost immediately. Anytime they had other patients in that room, 
if family stayed overnight or something, they'd wake up with scratches on their arms. They complain about weird nightmares. Apparently to the point where it wasn't just like, oh, a couple of them had nightmares here and there. It was to the point where everyone was talking about like anytime they stayed in that room and just anytime that room was empty, shit would get thrown around or they'd walk in and there'd be a mess on the floor. Like stuff would be pulled out of the drawers and medical supplies would be thrown all over the place. Certain staff members just started refusing to go into the room altogether. And so only a specific few would like if someone needed to get something out of that room and no one was in there like they would either go together or send someone who didn't mind doing it i can't remember if you mentioned it on the show previously but i assume you tell me a story of like you working there one night where and it might have been that room or it might have been the floor i can't remember but a vcr kept spitting a tape out like it was completely turned off but it just spit a tape out like across the right. floor so the room I'm talking about was uh, years before I started working there when it used to be on a different floor. And I have brought that up on this podcast before. That was a, a random night shift night that I worked where it was really the only main supernatural thing that happened directly to me where like the VCR ejected itself. And then like the monitor was just suddenly on for no reason. Yeah. And I swear that it wasn't on previously. But anyway, so it got to the point apparently where they just stopped using that room. Literally the management got to the point where they're like, we're just going to convert this room because I guess they had the room space already or they were getting ready to move to the new floor. So for like the last several months, they just converted it into a storage closet basically. And even then, like, because it was a storage closet, shit would get thrown around. So I don't know whatever happened to that room. But uh, that story like kind of was like passed down from some of the older nurses and I think even some of the providers. But one of the things just dealing with a kid that's just completely off when I was younger in high school, we had to do some volunteer hours in between semesters and things like that, you know, Catholic high school, all that jazz. So I volunteered at a, a nursing home, just kind of visiting with the residents, talking with them, helping out the staff, whatever way I could, doing bingo, things like that. It was a fun time, actually. But there was one resident I like to go visit a lot. But her grandchild was like, there was just something off about this kid. And I remember meeting him for the first time. You know how you get that feeling where you look in someone's eyes, immediately red flags just go off in your brain and you just get that apprehension. The instinct kicks in of like, this is a threat, basically. I kind of got that and I just thought like, oh, maybe this kid's reminding me of a horror movie or something and I'm just overreacting. Well, this kid started getting caught doing really weird shit, not just pranks, but just going into other people's rooms of like really old bedridden patients and just kind of staring at them and getting caught by staff as he's just staring at them. I remember one time I was like going to the bathroom and I had left the room and he was on his way from like getting a drink of water at the water fountain and he stopped me and he wanted me to shake his hand and he's like, shake my hand, shake my hand. I'm just having a fantastic day. <laughs> kind of did this like devious grin to me and I just kind of walked right past him and didn't <laughs> talk to him. He was trying to spread the evil to you. <laughs> yeah. So I just uh, I just kind of remember that kid. And yeah, just the creepiest shit, like staring at other people you don't know at all and getting caught by other family or staff. And after I volunteered there, I waited like two or three months towards the end of the summer to go like bring my sheet of hours to get signed off by like the person who I, uh, I worked under. And when I was there, they were like, oh, yeah, we asked the family to either stop coming if they're going to bring that child or leave the child home because... Jeez him. <laughs> yeah, because he just like started scaring the other guests. And I was just like... 
that makes sense. So I never, I, I don't know whatever happened to that kid. I don't even remember the family. I don't remember their names. I don't remember anything about them. Otherwise, I would Google search and try and find out if that kid went on to become a serial killer. Or, not, but. <laughs> or how long ago was this and how old was he? Should we be I mean, expecting an antichrist in like 10 yeah, years? Yeah, I know, right? You said you were in high school, right? Yeah, I was like 14, 15, and this kid was like a seven-year-old. Okay, you're a year younger than me. So he would, we would already know he's the antichrist by this point. Well, well, so I was about to say, you're you're a year younger than me, and I graduated in 2006. So if you were volunteering, maybe in your, like, junior or senior year, you said it was over the summer or during the school year? This one was over the summer. Like, in between, I think in between 10th and 11th, maybe? Yeah, what if this kid, like, suddenly snapped on June 6, 2006? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the only times, it's only happened in my life a handful of times where I've met somebody and instantly I my my hair was on edge and I just felt instantly alert of what they were doing and it's such a weird feeling. You're in the presence of a threat and you don't know what it is and yeah. you think it has to do with this person but you don't know why. I know what you mean because it's that look that you were talking about. It's the opposite when you look at somebody and you look in their eyes and you get that sense of there is nothing going on on behind their eyes like there's just kind of a lifelessness to a person it's the exact opposite of that where you just like sense this weird intensity coming off that person and it might just be like charisma personality just kind of seeping off somebody but yeah i know what you're talking about it's the exact opposite of just looking at somebody and like they're not being anything there well yeah it goes hand in hand with the whole idea that sociopathic tendencies are found in both serial killers and like fortune 500 ceos yeah I, i'm totally on the side of if you met an actual psychopath, Ted Bundy, basically, like, it wouldn't be that you look in their eyes and it's, like, black like a doll's eyes. <laughs> How more. many times are we gonna do this? <laughs> I have to take it every time I get a chance to. But I don't think it would be emptiness. I think it would be, like, that overbearing, yeah. charismatic, sociopathic energy. <laughs> yeah. I think for me, I honestly have not at all in my life ever had any kind of paranormal instances that I can ever directly point to. I think the closest to that, I mean, me being like a complete 100% skeptic, I think the closest to that is just like, there are times where my brother Jesse, who does our music, a shout out to him, there are weird times where like, we finish each other's sandwiches a little bit, and there's a five-year gap between us, but we're the closest of like, any of my brothers, Um, and there are definitely times that like, we'll just be on kind of the same thought wavelength and pick up on what the other was saying, or something like that, like this the same thing that you hear about like with twins all the time but we're definitely not twins that's like the closest thing i would say like from a paranormal standpoint from a kid standpoint years ago i was at my aunt and uncle's house and one of my little cousins when she was maybe like ooh, four or five six i mean this was years ago i was sleeping in her bedroom and i woke up because i heard someone talking and i look over and she is like sitting in the corner with her toys just like talking full blast at the corner. Nuh-uh. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and, Fuck 
that. And I'm sure, like, a lot of it might have just been, like, imagination and her, like, talking to her toys or... Are the ghosts of the child that it lives Possibly, in yeah. Herself. But I just remember being, like, so creeped out by that because it was just full blast little kid talking but, like, at a fucking empty corner, you know? And that's, like, what woke me up early, early in the morning. That's the only, like, creepy kid thing I can, like, think of. And even then, like, she's totally fine and, like, well-adjusted. And, like I said, it was probably just her, like, imagination playing with her toys, but I definitely just remember being like, the fuck is she do? <laughs> I watched this turn into an Annabelle story, though. Like, later on, she goes back to her house or something and finds that doll in the attic and then just goes off the fucking rocker. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, weird drawings on the inside of the walls or something like that. Uh, but, yeah, uh, that's, I think that's, like, the closest example I have of that, so. Well, and I totally believe in, uh, I don't know if it's even supernatural. I think there might even just be some science towards it where siblings and even just people who are around each other for a long enough time, like super best friends, get to the point where I don't know if it's all done through patterns or if it's... Uh, I think it is. Or, I think it's, it's patterns and programming and it's just your brain literally kind of rewiring itself at the same time as this other yeah. person and you're kind of rewiring on the same channel you know yeah and and like the whole idea of and i mean this in more of a scientific way that's just something we just don't know about yet of some broadcasting nature of thought basically because there have been so many moments where like my best friend sean mars that i mean off the fucking wall stuff like one of us would turn to the other and be like you know what i was just thinking about this and the other one would be like i was literally just thinking about the same thing and i, I mean I remember this only has happened to me a handful of times too, but I remember one time like I, it was a summer when I was 12 or 13 or whenever my oldest sister started driving. I remember getting this really, really awful feeling that something happened to someone in our family. And then like two hours later, I find out that she was involved in a bad wreck. Granted, she wasn't hurt or anything, but her car was totaled. And yeah. it's just stuff like that where I was like, yeah, I just think there's a science to it. There has to be. Yeah. And it's just something we probably don't realize yet. So, okay, cool, cool. We are going to get started with the movie in a hot second, but I think we have a little shout out to do for our friends at Podcoin. Yeah, Podcoin, which has been super great to us. Uh, the community has been fantastic. The management, everything. I've just been enjoying our time on there. Um, did you know you can use it to get paid while listening to your podcast? It is totally free. It's kind of like a cryptocurrency thing where you just listen to your podcast like you normally do um, in any other podcast app, and it records how much listening time you have, and it gives you so many Podcoins for so many minutes you listen. And you could take those Podcoins after you build up enough to either donate to charity, um, which is great, or even just like get a gift card to Starbucks. Or if you save up for a long enough time, you can even get like $50 on Amazon. You build up coins relatively quickly. Uh, I know I have, and I average about 30 minutes to an hour of podcast listening on days that I'm busy. And even then I'm still building up a good bit of coinage. And you can get free 300 pod coins by entering in our code if you join. And our code is just Simply Dare, D-A-R-E. So yeah, get on it. Donate to charity, get you a cup of coffee, and go have fun. Yay! So, let's get started with 1976's The Omen. 1976's <laughs> The Omen. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife Catherine was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, 
when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. And then it happened again. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. 20th Century Fox presents a film of psychological suspense about an occurrence of earth-shaking importance. Gregory Peck, Lee Remick, The Omen. I was at the hospital, Mr. Thorne, the night your son was born. I saw its mother. I saw its mother. I have fears. I have fears. Kind of fears. Its mother, Mr. Thorne. You saw my wife. Its mother. What is it you're trying to say? His mother was a This is not a human child. Make no mistake. There are those who will die for him. There are those who will kill for him. Who is he? What does he want? Where did he come from? And can he be stopped? Gregory Peck. Lee Remick. The Omen. This is the truth. Where does it end? So, Crystal, you chose this movie. You were coming to stay with us for a few days, so I just figured, like, hey, let's take advantage of that. I've always appreciated your insights whenever we've talked about movies or books or whatever, so I asked you to be on, asked you to kind of pick, and I honestly was really surprised that The Omen's what you picked. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about, like, why you chose this one specifically. Yeah, so me and Heather had two other friends that we, I think it was the summer between between 11th and 12th grade. I think that summer I was obsessed with going through like AFI's top 100 movies or whatever. So we were like watching them together and we had watched The Exorcist, which I personally didn't care for too much. I felt like it didn't age super well effects wise for me personally. And I was already, already had a little bit of interest in practical effects and stuff. So I had read, I think the, the original Omen maybe was on the list or I had read that like the practical effects were like much more realistic because they didn't go quite as far as well, it's the Wasn't as fantastical. Yeah. yeah. And so I, at this point, it was like pre-Netflix. I don't think they had the Omen at Blockbuster either. So I like got the first three Omen movies on VHS through like eBay. Hell so yeah. We could watch them. <laughs> And I think Heather and I, I don't think the boys wanted to watch it. They are not big horror fans. Heather and I were. And so we watched the first and the second and almost all of the third, I think. And I think Heather and I had already seen the remake of The Omen because that was 6606. I saw it on the 6th of June uh, with my cousin who was really excited about it. He was a big horror fan. Because I think that the remake was pretty good. I prefer the original. See, that's interesting. I was going to ask you, like, uh, since you like The Omen so much, what your thoughts about the remake were. Yeah, I liked it. I just like 
kind of what they were able to do in 76 with not nearly as many resources as they had in 2006. I think that the story and the acting to a point, but I honestly don't remember that much positive or negative about the acting. But for the original, I mean, Atticus Finch is playing the dad and I had, you know, such instant empathy for his character having grown up watching To Kill a Mockingbird and, you know, growing up in the South idolizing Gregory Peck a little bit for that role. So he was a really good touchstone for me in this movie and following his journey. And then the kid that played Damien just mastered the creepy smile. I remember liking the kid in the the 2006 one as well. But yeah, I just felt like the original, like, I don't know that it really needed to be redone, but it wasn't a bad remake. Yeah. That's good to hear because I, we've covered other movies like hell our first episodes Texas Chainsaw and The Fog where the remakes are nowhere near as good as the originals. <laughs> yeah. But it's nice to hear that while the original may still be superior that the remake wasn't a total trash can fire. Yeah, it's it's been like over a decade since I've seen that remake, but I I remember it being terrible either. Like, I feel like the filmmakers were really like they weren't just trying to make money, they were like really trying to be faithful to the original after seeing the original having seen the remake it felt like they were like trying to hit the same beats mostly just trying to enhance it a little bit with 30 years of technology some of the casting too between. like Mia Farrow as Miss Blaylock is definitely like yeah. you know the, the original actress in this movie that we're going to discuss today is good in that role but I think just the way that everything's staged you know she's a little bit over the top for the rest of that movie being fairly grounded right but Mia Farrow is always good. Yeah, and also like Mia Farrow, she doesn't have to like chew the scenery yeah. for you to side-eye her a little bit. She's played enough roles that are like, uh, what is going on? That like you already don't quite trust her whole thing. Yeah. Um, so she right, doesn't have right. to overact to sell that, I don't think. Yeah. Well, um, this movie was directed by Richard Donner, who of course went on to do Superman, Lady Hawk, the entire Lethal Weapon series, the Goonies. So one thing that this movie is really kind of notorious for is this movie had a lot of those really crazy supernatural, coincidental kind of things happen surrounding the production of this movie. And apparently Donner was really legitimately paranoid while making this movie, but he's one of the people that this movie honestly totally paid off because it was a big hit and it propelled his career from there and he's still alive. <laughs> like, there are actually people that have supposedly died, you know, in the course of making yeah. this movie. So, he's apparently still doing well. I had no idea about that with the production of The Omen. Because, I mean, you know, you always hear about it with... The Exorcist. Uh, the Poltergeist yeah. or The Exorcist are the two that I always think of um, when you hear of Hollywood curses and things like that. But yeah. I didn't know that that was the case with The Omen. What were some of the stuff that happened with uh, the production of it? Okay, so I will say this much with Poltergeist. Poltergeist is one of those series where it had a lot of unfortunate things kind of happen over the course of that series. I mean, the most notorious thing kind of being Heather O'Rourke dying midway through making the third movie, but several other people involved in that movie just died of mysterious cancers that came out of nowhere and things like that. Those things happen. They're like, those people are legitimately dead. With The Omen, there is one 100% confirmed death. And there are several other deaths that 
haven't been 100% verified over the years. Just things like, supposedly after the, like, sequence at the zoo, one of the animal trainers was attacked and killed by the baboons. Gregory Peck was supposed to get on a flight to Israel and change flights at the last minute, and these five Japanese businessmen, like, all died in a plane crash, and that's not been, like, 100% verified. The one that has been is the special effects supervisor for this movie. Basically, as soon as he was done, he left to go do A Bridge Too Far and was in a car wreck where his assistant, who was his girlfriend at the time, like, literally got decapitated. Jesus! Yeah, and there are other things like when Gregory Peck and Richard Donner were both flying to the UK to shoot this movie on separate planes, separate times. Both planes were hit by lightning and the engines went out. So, I mean, there's lots of stuff like that that surrounds this movie, but a lot of it has just been unverified. And I'll say this, the movie had a budget of $3 million, but the studio spent $7 million on marketing after the fact, which is, you know, we've discussed that before. That's fairly common that movies and TV shows will spend a lot of money on the back end for the marketing. And this movie was definitely the same way. I mean, they hyped the shit out of this movie. They like went out of their way to do a promo screening on June 6, 1976, and how these custom posters made the sixth day of the sixth month and blah, blah, blah. The number of the beast. <laughs> yeah, they definitely like went out of their way to hype this movie, so who knows right, how much right. of that stuff is real. Proto-guerrilla marketing, basically. Basically, yeah. So Richard Donner apparently was legitimately paranoid while making this movie, but he's one of the people that totally came out on the better end of it. David Seltzer, who wrote it, he also did Willy Wonka, and he would go on to do The Prophecy, which we actually discussed in our last episode. Again, Google image Pizza Bear. Jerry Goldsmith did the score, which this was actually his only Oscar win. And Goldsmith is legendary, to say the least. Um, Everybody knows, like, John Williams and some of those obvious people, but Goldsmith is one of those guys that I think is still just so underrated for the amount of stuff that he's done and just the fact that he's, like, such a solid composer in general, but I mean, he's got so many credits. Just to give you an idea, these are just the horror-related movies that he's done. So he did all three of the Omen movies, The Swarm, Magic with Anthony Hopkins, he did Alien, Poltergeist 1 and 2, Psycho 2, The Twilight Zone movie, Gremlins 1 and 2, The Burbs, Leviathan, Warlock. Like Those are all just the horror movies that he's done. So I mean, he's had an insane career, but this is his only Oscar win. Matter of fact, like he wasn't even at the Academy Awards that year because he had been nominated and lost half a dozen times before that. So he was just like, yeah, fuck it, I'm not going to go. And this is the one that he won for. And of course, we've been joking this whole time, but the music is like so, you know, memorable from this movie, just the ridiculous Latin and everything else. Yeah, I love how the, that's what got him the Oscar win. Yeah. Ave Satania Domino Biscuits. Which I've been sending you texts all week with. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, originally, the Robert Thorne role in the movie was offered to a bunch of different people. They originally conceived it for Oliver Reed specifically, which, again, like, sweaty, drunk Oliver Reed at this point in his career would have been kind of amazing. Just imagining him, like, walking around like, this child is the Antichrist. We must destroy him now. Just sweating, drunk everywhere. Apparently, 
they also either considered or offered the roles for William Holden, um, which he would actually, in the sequel, play Thorne's brother. Charlton Heston, Roy Scheider, Dick Van Dyke, Charles Bronson. Which Charles Bronson's kind of the weird. Like, I cannot imagine Charles yeah, Bronson can't. at this point in his career, like, as that character. It, it, I guess it's like Arnold Schwarzenegger in most movies where it's like, oh, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a mattress salesman from Minneapolis? Cool, I believe that. Yeah, <laughs> Charles Bronson is a U.S. diplomat. Okay, cool. He's the U.S. diplomat that'll, like, beat your ass. So I wanted to ask both of you guys. So Gregory Peck and Lee Remick play the mother and father. Is this another situation, like, in the fog where one actor is a bit older than the other? Because to me, uh, and granted, I loved Gregory Peck in this movie, don't get me wrong, but to me, it seemed like just from appearance-wise that Peck was a good bit older than Lee Remick at the time of the shooting of this movie. Was that another situation just like in the fog? Yeah, he is. And that's, you know, still unfortunately like a common thing in Hollywood. But Lee Remick looks really, really stunning for her age, I'll say, because she was in Anatomy of a Murder like almost 20 years before this movie. Yeah, I would say that it bothered me more at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Because she did appear very young in the opening scenes before they had gone through, you know, some amount of trauma. When they had gone through that and, like, stopped making her up quite as much, they kind of evened out a little bit. I mean, he was still older, but it it didn't look like she was 20 and he was pushing 60 anymore like it did at the beginning of the movie. The same thing happened to me. It threw me off a little bit at the beginning, but towards the end, like you were saying, her character went through a, a, a couple traumatic things. She does start looking older, but not older in like a bad way, just them being around the same age is more believable by the end of the movie for me, right. um, which I don't know if that was done on purpose or not. I'm sure it was. But yeah, I just thought there was a, a bit of an age gap between Peck and Remick. Yeah, and I'm, I don't know like her exact age, but I just hopped up and like ran over to my movie shelf to check the date on Anatomy of a Murder. That movie was 59, so let's say it was shot in 58. I mean, that's almost 20 years before this movie was made, and she was, I think, at least 18 to 20 in that one. Okay. She was not like 25 in this movie and Peck was like 60. It wasn't like that drastic of a gap, but like he's definitely older. Mid-30s, yeah. mid-50s, kind of. Yeah, but no, she she definitely, like, especially in the beginning, like both of y'all have stated, she looks a lot younger than her age then because she did, did look kind of like Jamie Lee Curtis and what's-his-fuck in the fog to yeah. me at first. <laughs> well, I mean, it, we don't get super into, like, actors and actresses on this show that much, but she is really, really stunning, especially for her age in The Omen, but again, she's a firecracker and anatomy of a murder. So, I mean, she's she's great. I've liked her in pretty much everything I've ever seen her in. David Warner, who plays the photographer Keith Jennings in this movie, he's another one of my favorite character actors. Again, mm-hmm. like, dude has insane credits. Tron, Time Bandits, Waxwork. He was in Twin Peaks. He's the scientist guy from Ninja Turtles 2. He was in another good anthology that I know I've mentioned on the show before, which is Necronomicon Book of the Dead. <laughs> and he's one of the characters in that anthology. He's in a really fun HBO original movie from the 90s called Cast a Deadly Spell that is it's Fred Ward from Tremors and Clancy Brown and not B.B. Newworth 
No, it was Julianne Moore, I think. Damn. But it's, it's like a 1930s, 40s detective story kind of thing that's very Lovecraft heavy. But it, the whole idea is like magic is real. And some people can like actually do magic. Fred Ward is kind of this like gumshoe detective in it. And David Warner's kind of, you know, obviously one of the villains. He usually is playing villains. But again, like another ding, ding, ding. And we'll probably play this game going further. He also did a voice in Batman the Animated Series. Can you guess who? It's either going to be Mr. Freeze or uh, Ra's al Ghul or Rachel Ghul, however you pronounce it. Bingo. He was he was Ra's al Ghul. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Those were the two I could picture him being. Yeah. I have a feeling that we'll probably continue to play this game because every major character in that cartoon is somebody big. So we'll probably yeah. continue to come back to that. Dude, I remember looking up his credits earlier this week and dude was even in a handful of video games. Yeah. Like <laughs> even as late as 2016, he provided a voiceover. Yeah. He's still knocking around. Yeah. So for me, The Omen, growing up, I always talked to my dad about horror movies, specifically like what was it like when The Exorcist came out because he was of the movie going age around that time and he he saw these movies when they first dropped in theaters and he was just like, yeah, you know, The Exorcist was scary, but honestly, people blew it out of proportion. He, he always stated to him the scariest movie he had ever seen when he was younger was The Omen. And I had seen bits and pieces of The Omen like growing up, just like catching it on AMC and other cable TV networks. Yeah. Yeah, it was on TNT and TBS a lot growing Yeah, up. yeah. But I never watched it start to finish. I would never catch any of the super creepy parts of it, but it always intrigued me, but I just never got around to watching it. Never really had an excuse to. And I'm glad I actually watched it now that I'm older than as a teenager, because as a teenager, I think I would have been like, oh, there was no spider uh, walk down the stairs. Who gives a shit? This isn't scary. But as an adult, I understand now why my dad thought it was the scariest thing he had ever seen at the time because it's not jump scare scary at least I mean there are a couple jumpy moments but it's not jump scare scary it's just creepy it just drips in creepiness and it's not just supernatural creepiness either even people's faces that they make during certain parts specifically Damien or Miss Baylock the satanic nanny to me she is the best part of this movie she is the creepiest character in this movie and just I enjoyed her performance I think that's Billy Whitelaw was the actress who played her she was fantastic and man did she creep me the fuck out in this. I mean, I'll straight up say it. There were moments where I would be going to sleep in the middle of the night and just kind of roll over and just in my head, all of a sudden I start hearing creepy Latin music and Miss Baylock is in the corner of my room. I didn't know it. And she just fucking attacks me with a knife or something. <laughs> this movie did get under my skin a little bit. Uh, I have to admit it was made in the what? 1976. It still holds up as far as horror goes. This is one of the creepier movies we've watched, if, especially if demonic supernatural stuff really bothers you. This might be a good movie to start with. This might be a good way to get your toes in. But even then, it's pretty intense. I think a lot of what works about it is just, you know, Miss Blaylock, I think, is the only kind of weak link to this idea. But you never see anything overtly demonic or paranormal or anything. So you can literally look at this movie and take a complete skeptic's view and just wonder, like, is this literally a movie about a man who is going crazy and, like, getting drunk? drawn into delusions and imagining all this because of 
these superstitions and all this coincidental shit happening around him. And by the end of the movie, you really have to wonder, like, how much of this is actually what he thinks it is and how much of it is completely these delusions that he's built up over time. And I think that's scarier than, like, if an actual demon popped up at the end and was just like, uh it's really happening. Rosemary's Baby is a lot of the same, where you really don't know how much of that is really happening and how much is maybe just in her head and she's being gaslit by these people around her. Whereas something like The Exorcist, I know The Exorcist like gets all the hype, especially from like that scary Catholic, the devil is real kind of thing. But The Exorcist just immediately starts with, oh no, the devil's real. This girl is like completely possessed and all this bad shit's happening. Again, this movie, like you could completely read it as just this guy is going crazy at the end. Don't get me wrong. I like overtly supernatural themes. Yeah, I do too. Horror movies. Like, yeah, if something's overtly supernatural, it can be great. Like, The Exorcist is still great. Don't get me wrong. But The Omen just, it's that type of horror that sits with you and gets under your skin. Yeah. I remember the first time I saw The Spider Walk, I pictured that every time I was going to sleep for a couple weeks, but it didn't really get under my skin like The Shining or like The Omen did. The Omen very much is almost like, it's very referential horror or vague horror. And that's the type of horror that sits with me a lot longer than just jump scares. Yeah. And I think too, like this movie might sit with all three of us potentially in a different way because we all grew up in the religious South to varying degrees. And so just so much of this is all the stuff that we had heard about all of our lives that like, oh yeah, the devil's real. This is the devil's work or whatever. And so a lot of that kind of hits home in that way. Like I've mentioned on the show before, my parents were kind of, I mean, my parents were fairly strict about a lot of the stuff that we watched growing up, but in kind of some contradictory ways, like there were just basic things like they didn't want us watching The Simpsons because Bart Simpson was bad. But then like I could watch The Omen, that was okay because, oh yeah, like they're fighting the devil and like no big deal. This dude just gets his head chopped off. You know, whatevs. This lady jumps out a window and hangs herself. You know, no big. This guy gets fucking impaled through his, sh- like, shoulder yeah. and out his side. Yeah. So No biggie. I don't know. Like, I think the religious part of it definitely hits home more with people who, like, come from that background. Because even if you are, like, you know, a complete 180 skeptic by whatever point in your life, like, if you watch it, there's still always that nagging part in the back of your head where you go back to a lot of that background and you just have to wonder like is the devil real like is this stuff actually coincidence or am I just again deluding myself and everything else so right by the time I watched it I was out of the church and like I was pretty sure by that point that I did not believe in everything I grew up believing but something about demons and possession and the antichrist and the coming apocalypse that's prophesied in revelations there's something about all of that lore that feels more real to me than like ghosts and vampires and different other horror tropes. Even though I don't actually believe in it, it feels a little bit more grounded. Is it maybe because so much of it is intangible and it's just unseen? Like with vampires and monsters and shit, there has to be a vampire or a monster and you don't see vampires and monsters, right? But with something like this where it's just the force of evil, that can just be happening around you. That doesn't have to be like something tangible so right. like and that could happen that, like, dot 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 does actually like exorcisms happen the leeway is is there a demon in that person or are they just kind of torturing this person because they think that, that a demon is in yeah. there 
it's not a completely made up thing. It's just about like you're saying, happens. like, yeah. is he the Antichrist or is does the priest and the photographer convince him to go exactly. along with their delusion of that? And I think the the second movie kind of answers that, which I like kind of the first movie as that kind of ambiguous yeah. ending. Even with the ambiguous nature of the first movie, which I agree with both of y'all is like the best part about the horror in this movie. Even then, for me, again, the Miss Baylock character, even though she kind of throws a wrench in the ambiguity of it, I still think even if you took the whole idea of like, this is just mass psychosis, you could still go down that route and just be like, this nanny's fucking out of her mind, even though like yeah. she's just, she never comes out and says like, she is satanic. The only thing you get is her like going to Damien being like, I'm here to protect you basically. Yeah. And that could just totally be like this nanny who's off her rocker coming in and, and working for them. So I, I think you could still take that route with it, but it's interesting that all three of us are varying degrees of skeptics, non-religious. While we all, three of us, sounds like we've had religious backgrounds, we've, all three of us have walked away. I was Catholic. Uh, you were Baptist, right, Mansfield? Uh, no. I mean, my family was really non-dom growing up. Non-dom. What about you, Crystal? Southern Baptist. Heather and I went to church together for years, yeah. Yeah, so like all three of us are different degrees of Christianity and we probably have our own belief systems, Mansfield, you're probably more skeptical than I am about certain things, but even then, we're three of us sound like we're pretty much of the mindset of science and logic and things like that. But yeah, I mean, this is just a crazy idea. Like, it even goes back to the whole idea of tulpas, like thought form ghosts. What if the devil and supernatural nature and all that is just the collective unconsciousness of humanity creating these things, and they're just as real as Batman is? Batman's just a fictional concept, but Batman is as real as anything else is. Well, so. I think the difference is there's still like an actual physical representation of all of this story in real life. Right. You know, again, like vampires. Okay, we have lots of stories and lore about vampires, but as far as physical evidence is concerned, okay, well, there's like a castle that the actual historical Vlad the Impaler lived in and all the legends surrounding him, but okay, he was just another Genghis Khan, essentially, who built hype for himself. Beyond that, there's the occasional superstitious thing like the vampire grave in like Romania where they like built a cage around the grave but that's kind of it with this stuff that the Omen's hitting on there's literally an entire religion built around all of this and there are physical places that you can go to like you know the city of Megiddo and Jerusalem and all these like places that are tangible and institutions that are tangible an entire system of belief that is like there built around this idea and the fact that you can see that and touch it and experience it in the physical world at least that tangible part of it it makes you wonder is the rest of it actually real as well, which I mean, obviously like with Christianity, that faith aspect is kind of the entire anchor of it. But if you're going to go with that part, then you also then have to accept that the evil side is also there, you know? So it's just that that part of your brain where you have to like decide, you know, how far are you going to kind of buy into that with all this lore and everything else? Yeah, I totally agree. Now to get a little hooky do with it, was this all in response to divine word and divinity? or did divine word and divinity come out of the collective unconsciousness and then this is all <laughs> physical embodiments <laughs> I'm sorry I gotta just go down that rabbit hole <laughs> 
but yeah going back to the movie yeah that's what makes it so creepy is like you can go both ways you could be like this totally is all satanic real that this is really the devil's son and it just as creepy as if you want to go down the route of mass psychosis uh, that's why the shining is so effective yeah uh, mm-hmm. as well so so yeah before we go into the plot i just also wanted to say again if you're a horror beginner this one's pretty intense um it got under my skin but also too just as a uh i think you're good yeah i think you're good I but also good. too as far as our friends go who are like oh y'all never do popular movies go fuck yourself we're doing the omen <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's popular movies if we just did popular movies it would just be the paranormal activity movies and whatever you know happens to be currently on netflix right now so whatever. this week we're doing a super popular movie it's an old one and it's called the exorcist buckle up buckaroos which again we will do the exorcist we'll do these famous movies but we want variety yeah maybe take our episodes as a suggestion of something to check out just saying no but i'm, I'm mostly kidding i love you guys thank you for listening five stars on itunes <laughs> Yeah, I did have one of my, like, younger employees the other day who was like, what's the omen? I was like, oh, come on, kid. (laughs) I'm not that old where I'm grumbling yet, but that was a grumbly moment that I'm now grumbling about. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, to run through the plot real quick, we open up in Rome with Robert Thorne, played by Gregory Peck again. He's an American diplomat, and uh, we see him, like, rushing in his car through all this Italian traffic, and he's heading to the hospital, and we're getting kind of a voiceover from the doctors and his wife Catherine was in the process of giving birth but we are then told through voiceover that the child has died in the process of childbirth. Robert arrives at the hospital. The chaplain at the hospital and the nuns basically kind of convince him of this idea that like, hey, there's this other baby whose mother died. Same time, you know, same night and everything else. Let's just pull a switcheroo, basically. Um, And that way your wife will never know. She's happy. Like, things are good to go. And he's like, yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, which you feel bad for his character through this movie, but really all of this is his fault. Yeah. That's a really fucked up thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> to agree to something like that. I don't know what Italian hospitals are like either, but I can assume that even back then in the 70s, there's bound to be paperwork involved, you know? And especially for an American diplomat who should know better, he's just like, yeah, sure, whatevs. It touches on the fears of, you know, losing a child in childbirth, yeah. like things going wrong and like really wanting a child and then it getting taken away from you right, at, right when you think you're gonna finally have one. Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day too, to get a little bit personal, Heather and I have definitely seriously discussed the idea of adoption before, and when we We've mentioned that to other people. A common thing that comes up always is just like, well, if you adopt, you don't know what you're going to end up with. And it's like, well, if I have kids of my own, I don't know what I'm going to fucking end up with. Like, what does that matter? Yeah, you, you have know? just as much a chance to get Damien yeah. through childbirth as adoption. Exactly. So, you know, I think there's always that general kind of fear in the back of people's minds when it comes to stuff like this. So, you know, yeah, that's, that's always kind of a present thing for sure. Yeah, I was just gonna speak to that too because I am adopted yeah um and so like seeing movies like this it's always a little eye-rolly because it's like of course like this is a story about adoption people are gonna remember in their heads yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it's kind of like the orphan like they adopt this little girl and she becomes a freaking serious right. or whatever <laughs> yeah that trope has got to be very eye-roll inducing for you yeah for sure I mean there's some good ones but yeah mostly it's we're demon children yeah cool. <laughs> yeah and that's 
that's definitely something that in my head I'm always just like, you know what, if that does happen, we'll love that kid just the same and it'll be all right. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll be spared in the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, if you look at uh, when I was watching The Omen, it reminded me of Good Omens. I feel like Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett had to like be like drinking beers watching The Omen together one day when they came up with the idea uh, for yeah, Good Omen. Absolutely. Because the idea of that whole book is you can raise someone who's not a demon to be awful, but he's still not a sociopath. And you can raise a sociopath to actually be a pretty okay dude, you know? Yeah, yeah like, I, I didn't realize until after watching this movie how much Good Omens is literally just the omen, but done in a way that what if the kid didn't really ever want to be the Antichrist? He, he's just kind of thrown into that role. Yeah. And he was raised well. And if the nanny was not actually trying to get him to... Yeah, like, she was super satanic, but she's really kind. Because <laughs> isn't his parents also, like, one of them is, like, a politician yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah It's yeah. literally the omen flipped on its head. It is. They had to have gotten drunk one night watching yeah. the omen, and they're like, but what if? Yeah. <laughs> what if it's this angel and this demon who are, like, <laughs> odd couple friends, and <laughs> they try to prevent the apocalypse? And y'all know, like, I'm a huge Hellboy fan, but that's also, like, literally the same exact plotline, except instead of being, like, the Antichrist, he's literally, like, the beast coming to bring forth the apocalypse, and it's the same thing. It's just, you were birthed for this purpose, but you were raised by people who were, like, good and mean well and taught you right, so, like, are you still damned to that destiny or not? Do you embrace it? Do you, you know, reject it by having people around you? And this movie definitely doesn't get into that. Damien is clearly just bad from the get-go, and everything is just kind of destined to be what it is, but I know some of, like, the later sequels, like, I saw the third one years ago, and that one's got Sam Neill playing Damien, like, really in his rise in politics, and I know that that movie deals with that a little bit, from what I remember, but it's been a minute. Scream Factory, again, shout out, please sponsor us sometime. (laughs) (laughs) Send me screeners. They are about to do a box set of all these movies that includes the fourth TV movie, the remake, and then one through three. I'm going to pick that up when it comes out in the fall, and I'm really curious to go back and rewatch three because I know people do speak fairly highly of that one and just I saw it years ago and I need to go back to it. Yeah, Heather and I never finished it because I feel like it could be a good movie. Like I said, I didn't finish it so I don't have like a judgment on it. It wasn't the same formula as the first two. We just kind of weren't interested at the moment and like something that deviated from that Yeah, and that's part of the reason why I'm interested in going back to the third one because the first two are definitely just we're going to get to know these characters and introduce these characters and then one by one they're going to be knocked off in these wild ways which you know obviously stuff like Final Destination is immediately inspired by this movie but the third one you know was very different from what I remember and like you just said as a kid watching it I just didn't click with it but I'm curious to go back and and rewatch it now so to kind of keep going Robert again agrees to this whole switcheroo with the babies and they name the child Damien which will forever just curse anybody with that name <laughs> to lives of getting made fun of um, which when we eventually have my friend Damien on he's older than us so he was around when this movie came out and he will tell you all about it so should I avoid singing Ave 
say say tanny when he's on nah just you know maybe rip him about it a little bit but he'll he'll laugh and kind of roll his eyes so anyway robert finds out that he has basically been reassigned to the uk so he's now like going to be the ambassador to the uk so they move we kind of see a montage of damien growing up a little bit with them and from there we just kind of get into a bunch of scenes where a lot of bad coincidences and weird situations start to happen so we have one of Damien's birthday parties where everything's going great and the current nanny who's very attached to him she jumps from the second story of their house and hangs herself. I did it all for you Damien. Yeah so that is definitely an iconic scene that a lot of people have probably seen before. That one's pretty creepy. That's a pretty creepy scene. (laughs) Yeah she's just doing it with such glee that it's very unsettling. The way they shot it she jumps and then it shoots from the inside where another nanny is like cleaning and her body goes through the window and breaks the window and that nanny screams and then like it goes back to the front of the house where her body's just hanging there and this whole time there's that photographer he's taking pictures of Damien and Robert Thorne and then he starts taking pictures of her publicly hanging herself there's also images of dogs of a Rottweiler specifically the nanny sees a Rottweiler and then like kind of goes into a trance and then that's when she goes up on the roof does uh, I did it all for you and hangs herself so just keep that in mind as well yeah and like what a fucked up birthday party man like imagine if you were just like one of those other kids there and <laughs> I know and, right like, later in life it's like man I saw a woman like hang herself at a birthday party growing up and that <laughs> that fucked. fucking kid Damien was always really weird <laughs> from there we have Miss Baylock show up and she's this new nanny that kind of appears out of nowhere just like oh yes I am the new nanny they sent me who's they where'd you come from don't worry about it yeah they like don't question her enough yeah do you have references yeah the wife to her credit she's the one that's unsure of Miss Baylog the entire yeah. movie which is for good reason but Robert Thorne's like oh honey it's fine it's just the agency they're doing us a solid because of a such a tragic event we don't need to see your references just yet go play with our son stranger who also looks creepy as fuck Jesus Christ Billy Whitelaw I mentioned that while we were watching it there's something about her face that is very skull like her skin is just like stretched really tight around her face her face is thin and her lips are very thin and kind of stretched around her teeth like she just looks like an animated skull and her teeth too there's just something about her teeth when she smiles it's just so like good old British teeth man (laughs) yeah but like it's just so again I can't sing Billy Whitelaw praises enough like she just does such a good job of being a force of evil in this movie and that's the thing too they were legitimately thinking about just trimming her character from the story entirely because like we talked about it just shoots the ambiguity in the foot she's way too fucking creepy and weird and like has this connection and everything else and they were about to axe that character altogether but Donner was just like nah I like her I like the performance keep it in which I'm glad they did Yeah, I personally am glad they did so again uh, there's lots of other weird things that happen. This Catholic priest named Father Brennan also like shows up at Thorne's office and kind of just goes off on that immediate crazy person tirade of your son's the Antichrist and all this bad stuff and your son's not really your son and they switched him and blah 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 and it's like okay you're nuts and I feel like you're trying to blackmail me so get the fuck out of my office and he just kind of, and Thorne just kind of blows him off. Yeah and the photographer again is just kind of always in the background taking pictures of the priest and, yeah. and everything else and Father Brennan 
Brennan is very much sort of the same character as the priest from The Fog. So yeah. just kind of a haunted priest who's kind of off his rocker a little bit. And the photographer, like you said, they keep cutting back to him as he's developing pictures, which it cracked me up the first time they showed him in his dark room because he's just smoking a cigarette casually around all those chemicals. No big. But he keeps finding these weird anomalies in his photos. Like there's a picture of the priest that he kind of snap snapped on the down low. And there's like a weird kind of shadow streak that is going across the priest through his chest and shoulder and the nanny has like this weird shadow kind of behind her neck like a rope dot 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 um so he's starting to notice these weird coincidences in the background there's also a scene where the thorns and damien are going to a wedding and damien like flips the fuck out as soon as they get to this church and they just kind of close the car door and just drive back home and damien's you know basically perfectly fine once they get home there's also a scene where they go to a zoo and this is one of those oddball kind of safari style zoos where you stay in your car and you drive through these animal enclosures where the animals are kind of just running all around you is that a real thing in the uk that's a real thing in a lot of zoos not necessarily zoos in the u.s as much i'm I'm sure there are a few but that's totally a thing yeah okay i didn't realize it (laughs) yeah like even with the monkeys just out and about like that too yeah so okay completely unrelated to the movie but quick story heather and i so we actually went to the cancun area on our honeymoon it was a good time of the year it was cheap cool while we were there we specifically got married in the fall like right before halloween we actually stayed a few extra days because dia de los muertos was starting so we wanted to see some of that celebration and we went to this nature park um, which is called each Caret. and when i say nature park that's the best way i can think about it because we don't have anything like this in the u.s the closest thing i could think of is bush gardens but even then not the same it's like a six flags or a disney but there's nature integrated all the way through there's no like rides per se but they have stuff like lazy river through the cenotes the underground like river caverns that literally stretch from one end of the park to the other so you like lazy river get in on one side and end up on the other they also have snorkeling and you could get with you know a group that goes out at a certain time and go snorkeling and feed turtles and they had culture related stuff as well like there was always a big giant 300 person show every night that had the history of Mexico and then featured like specific cultural things from all the different Mexican states. Wonderful, wonderful like day trip kind of thing. So if you're ever in Mexico in the Cancun area, 100% go. But the one thing that we noticed was all of the animal related enclosures and encounters and things like that, they are just open. There's not really like any dividing you from the animals really. They literally have like a manatee thing where you could just walk up to the edge and like look in the water and see these manatees. There's no glass. There's no barriers. There's nothing keeping you from literally just, hey, fuck it, and jumping in the water with these manatees. There's not a lot of separation between you and the wildlife. And it was the same thing several years back. We went to Canada for a wedding and we went to the Calgary Zoo there. Same thing. There's very little separating you from the animals. So I think the like hyper security Jurassic Park ass zoos that we're used to in the US like that's just what 
our norm is, where you're between like three and four layers of separation with the animals. So a park thing like this in the UK is probably totally normal throughout the rest of the world. Right. So yeah, I, again, like sorry for that like complete diversion, but yes, that's the long-winded, I guess, explanation for that. Well, and and this is a pretty iconic scene too, where they go to this nature reserve, zoo, whatever you want to call it, and like they look at the giraffes, Damien stares at them, and the giraffes freak out and run away. Then they're later on, they're in the car, and they're going through, uh, I guess they're baboons, right? Yeah, they're baboons. Damien stares at them weirdly and then they all freak the fuck out and attack the car, which I think that scene might have been the one that's always looked at as one of the scariest moments in movie history, which is surprising to me that that overtakes some of the other scenes in this movie because I thought that horror scene was more light compared to even the nanny hanging herself. That's real, you know? Like, those were real baboons really attacking that car. Yeah. And Lee Remick is legitimately terrified in that scene. Like, you can, it's it's like Cujo. Like, you could tell there's, like, a palpable fear coming from them that feels dangerous. You don't get that sense with the rest of it because you know that it's a stunt or it's a special effect or whatever. Oh, man, if Kubrick was the one directing this, Lee Remick might not have ever recovered. Yeah, dear Lord. And I read somewhere that initially they were trying to get all the baboons riled up, so they put one of the babies in the car. Like, a trainer got in the car with them with a baby thinking, like, oh, that was going to drive all of them wild, and it didn't at all. And I guess my theory, like, this might be, like, me talking on my ass, but I'm pretty sure baboons are one of those weird animal groups that, because of resource scarcity and because of, like, population control, they tend to, like, cannibalize their young in certain situations. So I think it just might be one of those things where they're just like, whatever, don't care about this baby. It's not like other animal species were like, oh, you have my baby, ah, you know? But what they ended up doing was taking the alpha of this pack of baboons and putting the alpha in the car with one of the animal trainers and that drove all the baboons crazy yet more movie tricks that are fucking not allowed at all now. yeah totally uh, all this stuff too with damien just the amount of oh we have to get a reaction out of this five-year-old and so it's just richard donner off screen yelling at this kid like hey you little bugger i'm gonna walk over there and punch you and then immediately damien makes a mean face you know like just again stuff you couldn't get away with now <laughs> anyway so yeah like all this weird shit's kind of happening around them Catherine Thorne is becoming kind of weirdly paranoid about Damien and she's kind of becoming suspicious of him a little bit and you can tell that that's kind of going both ways where Damien's kind of realizing like oh she's not falling for my shit anymore and she's having weird things with Baylock. yeah they get in an argument about like everything Damien to the church and Baylock is weirdly just super against him going with them to mass yeah Baylock is just challenging their authority on pretty much everything like she's kind constantly questioning them, bringing up, well, what if this? And Damien doesn't want to do that. It's like, you're the nanny? I'm the parent. So there's that weird dynamic between the two of them as well, which there is a scene where they're arguing with each other, like, on this giant staircase in this mansion. And immediately I was just like, in my head, why did, like, super rich people buy these giant mansions? Okay. That's gotta suck. Having to walk around a giant goddamn house like that constantly. And that's a double staircase. That's a huge mass of staircase twice. Imagine having to go up that multiple times a day. Like, no thanks. I'm good. Why do rich people do that to themselves? <laughs> 
And I said that out loud, and Crystal's mom, who's also staying with us right now, she was watching the movie with us, and she was just like, yeah, no. We're, like, immediately on the same brainwaves for that. Well, and all this leads to, like, two major scenes. Uh, one is more quiet than the other. One is Father Brennan. After he approaches a Thorn one more time, and Thorn basically tells him to fuck off, the weather starts getting really weird, and he starts running, like, as lightning is striking around him. He's running through a graveyard towards a church, trying to get into the church, and the church door is locked. Next thing you know, lightning hits the top of the church, hits a rod, and, like, the rod comes down off the church and impales him through the shoulder, through the chest, and, like, out his side, just like it showed in the picture. And then the more quiet scene, which is kind of around the same time as Catherine telling Robert she's pregnant and wants an abortion. It's interesting because Father Brennan was just earlier, like, telling Thorne that, like, hey, your wife is pregnant right now. And he's like, How, what? No, she isn't. We don't know anything about that. That's impossible. And he kept saying, like, Damien is going to try and kill your unborn child and harm your wife. Yeah, which that whole aspect of Catherine wanting an abortion is interesting because there are not a ton of movies that are really dealing with this topic during this time period. This is, I guess, a little bit at the end of the women's lib movement, but you see that even in like Rosemary's Baby. That is definitely a factor there where she is actively contemplating having an abortion as well. And same thing with Catherine in this movie. And it's interesting that horror movies are the ones that are like discussing this specific topic when it was just so taboo everywhere else. You know, which again, we've brought this up before, but horror movies are just kind of a good release valve for a lot of the social pressures and anxieties and just like shit swirling around that we have to deal with. And it's kind of a good way that we can like discuss and look at these topics. Well, and take into account all the events leading up to her telling him this is all the shit she's just been through with Damien and yeah. Miss Bailoff. It's such an interesting examination of this idea because like at first you could take it as like, oh, this is kind of shocking news. But then when you think about it, it's like, well, she's been through hell and back with like Damien that, well, I kind of understand where she's coming from with this. If you had another child like Damien, like, nah, I'm <laughs> tapping out. Yeah. So, Again, like, Father Brennan kind of gives him more details, and Thorne is kind of actually hearing him out at this point because of all the other weird shit that's been happening. Thorne basically tells him, like, the Antichrist is gonna come, these are all the signs of his coming, and blah blah blah. And now Father Brennan, like, dying is even more evidence because Keith Jennings, the photographer, basically shows back up again and is like, yo, Thorne, um, I need to show you something. And so he kind of shows him, like, the coincidences of, again, the shadows with the priest and with the original nanny um, and all this kind of weirdness is happening and Keith shows Robert a specific photo that he took of himself in the mirror and there's like a weird kind of slash mark that just kind of happens coincidentally in the photo that's like right on Jennings's neck um, they kind of you know give each other a weird eye and Jennings looks into a mirror at himself ominously. Meanwhile Damien straight up knocks Catherine over the upstairs railing of their house and she falls <laughs> and yep. causes the miscarriage. Does does this predate The Shining? Yes. Or, yes. Okay. The tricycle was really interesting to me. Yeah. Danny's not evil. Danny is a wonderful child. I love him. But that ominous horror of the tricycle, yeah. kind of seeing that after like The Shining kind of making it famous around the hotel, the different sounds of the floor and stuff, because they use the noise on the floor too Yeah. in this one. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I didn't even think about that. And I like the way this scene is set up because like it shows her 
her like she's standing on i think like on a step stool or something like pruning plants on that upstairs hallway mm-hmm. right by the railing and like then it keeps cutting over to damien and he's literally just like riding around in circles in his room on that tricycle as the nanny is like watching him go around and around and then finally she just kind of slips open the door he goes around one more time then goes right out into the hallway and yeah the whole thing is very like Shining-esque of, of Danny discovering the twins except this time Damien is the evil force here right so yeah Damien whacks into Catherine as she's trying to water the plants and she falls off the railing of the second floor so she is injured she is now in the hospital. So she's super out of it, body cast and everything else. And she she basically tells Robert right as he's about to leave, yo, Damien's fucked up. Something's wrong with Damien. At this point, Robert's kind of, again, buying into all of it. And he's starting to kind of believe more and more with all the things that are going on. So he and Keith go back to Rome so that they can kind of look into Damien's actual birth. They show up at the hospital and they're looking for any kind of records or birth certificates or information about the mother, anything. And and everybody there just kind of stonewalls them. It's, it's either like, you know, nothing happened on that night, or we don't know what you're talking about, or there's no, like, father whoever that happens to be here. We don't know who you're talking about. And the hospital, old hospital, mysteriously burned down, like, the next day or yeah, something, Yeah, with right? all the records, so... Yeah. Which is, um, like, every Exorcist movie ever after this. <laughs> yeah, right. So, eventually, they end up finding the original priest who, like, basically proposed the whole switcheroo idea father spoleto and he is now kind of sequestered at this abbey in the middle of nowhere he basically was injured in the fire he's burned over half of his body so he has a bad arm now half of his face is burned and he's 100 catatonic so they go there to question him and with the help of another priest they basically ask him all these you know specific questions and he's kind of writing out some answers but he basically gives them the location of a graveyard where supposedly Damien's real birth mother is buried. So they go out to this graveyard in the middle of nowhere. Another small detail here, there's a line, a throwaway line where they're saying like, oh, this priest is kind of catatonic. He's kind of self-induced catatonic and kind of taking almost like a vow of silence and a vow of exiling himself Yeah, they even say like it's his penance for like... It's his penance. Turning his back on his flock. So I am very much of the mindset that the priests and the sisters that proposed this whole thing of let's switch the babies are totally like part of an actual satanic cult at that time causing like all these events to unfold and the current nanny is part of that whole group is kind of what my own like headcanon of this movie was yeah he was the one who set this in motion yeah so I mean they, they kind of allude to that when Jennings is showing Robert all the, all the photographs because he specifically says oh yeah Father Brennan had a 666 birthmark on the inside of his thigh that they found during his autopsy. And like, of course, that's like, you know, one of the most well-known symbols of all of this. So, you know, there's definitely like, you know, the devil's mark on the people who are involved. Yeah, and doesn't the catatonic priest also have it on him as well? Doesn't he show it? I can't remember. I don't think so. It was definitely Father Brennan, but I, I don't think they did that with this priest. And the last thing that Father Brennan says to Thorne right before he dies is, I'll see you in hell, basically. Yeah. 
And so it's like, yeah, Father Brennan and this priest were both part of the satanic cult that started all this, and now they're regretting their actions. Yeah. Whoops, whoops. So Robert and Keith go to this graveyard, and they eventually find the headstones with the proper dates. And there's a larger one with the mother's name on it, and then a little smaller one that just says Bambino, which is baby in Italian, which Heather leaned over to me and was like, I know that word, that's baby, because she's doing Italian on Duolingo. <laughs> so they open up the grave of the mother, and they just find this animal skeleton inside. You know, it looks kind of like a dog or a wolf. I've read one place where it says it's a jackal, so it's not yeah. it's not clear at all like what it is, but it is definitely a four-legged animal. I thought it was a jackal. Yeah, and then they throw open the baby's grave, and they find, yes, there is a baby skeleton in there with the skull smashed in. This is also kind of where, like, okay, we can look at both sides of the equation of, is this stuff really happening, or is this Thorn going crazy? Because Thorn immediately comes to the conclusion of, that's my baby, they switched our babies, and they killed this one, and like, ah, nothing, like, really leads to that. There's no, like, link to that distinctly. There's no, like, other proof they find of that. He just kind of jumps to that conclusion. So, I mean, you can take it for what it is, or, again, if you're choosing to look at this from the lens of he is just going crazy, like, he just pulls that out of his ass. There's nothing really leading to that. Well, and Keith is very much like, yeah, bro, you're totally right. Your son's the Antichrist, so Keith's not helping at all with that whole belief. While they're in the graveyard, they're attacked by a pack of Rottweilers, and they're both kind of injured. Robert actually even, like, impales his arm on the gate as he's trying to jump over. But they both managed to get away all said and done. They did a really good job of that arm in the gate because it was cringy the whole time, like, seeing if he was gonna unattach himself. Yeah. They did a good job with that scene. Well, and that whole scene is just another good horror scene of just open up this grave. So we got a little bit of grave robbing going (laughs) on. Find the carcass of a jackal and bury next to it a baby with its skull smashed. That whole idea alone, like, it doesn't matter if all this is based in reality. The idea of anyone who would have done that, who made that burial, that's creepy enough. And then on top of all of that, as you're discovering this out of nowhere, a wild pack of Rottweilers just attack you, which we haven't really mentioned it, but throughout the movie, that Rottweiler keeps showing up around their house. And Mrs. Baylock keeps saying like, oh, it's here to protect Damien, basically. Yeah, and at one point too, Robert's even just like, get this dog the fuck out of my house. Like, I don't want this dog here. Bring this dog to the ASPCA or what? ASPCA? RSPCA? I can't remember. Just said like, get this dog out of my house. Where'd this dog come from? Don't want it here. So Robert's pretty locked in. Like, he's pretty convinced. He calls the hospital where Catherine is currently staying and basically just tells her, you have to leave. Leave now. Get dressed. I'm sending somebody to pick you up. You're going to come to room with me. You're not safe. Drop what you're doing. And again, she's in a body cast. She is in bed. She is infirm. You know, so he's just like, yeah, get up and leave. Okay. To her credit, she starts doing it. And then one of the creepiest parts of the movie just flashes to the corner of the room where you can barely see anything. And you just see Mrs. Baylock has that weird fucking smile and like half her face is in shadows. Ave Satina starts playing. And then like she slowly starts coming at Catherine. Catherine's trying to get dressed. And she's trying to pull this kind of nighty thing off. But again, arms and cast. She's got like a cast around her neck as well. She's trying to pull this thing off and it's just over her face awkwardly. To me, it really referenced Mother Mary. Like when it was blue, which is associated with Mary. And right. it was this veil that looked saintly on her. But yeah, it was a really cool kind of moment. And they got to it in a practical way, which was cool. Yeah. 
But either way, we then cut to outside the hospital and we see, you know, an ambulance kind of drive up and park. And then all of a sudden this screaming and everybody looks up and we see Catherine like falling out of the window of this high rise and she smashes through the roof of an ambulance and the ambulance doors fly open and we see her all laid out with blood coming out of her eyes and mouth and everything. <laughs> what a fucking death. Yeah. Movies love to do this death, by the way. And I think yeah. this, I'd have to look it up, but this might be the originator of that thing. But same thing happens in like Let the Right One In and fucking uh, Maniac Cop 2. Like it, the whole like fall off high rise out of hospital, smash through roof of ambulance. Or like even less specifically than that, just fall off building, smash through roof of car, dead. Open door, dead body. Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. very few deaths in this movie, but the deaths that are in this movie are all memorable. Yeah. All top notch. There's the priest getting impaled, then this one, and we have another one coming up that. And uh, the nanny is, hanging herself too. Yeah. The, the nanny beginning. hanging herself. Yep. So they call Robert and tell him of his wife's death. And he has this moment where he kind of breaks down. And I originally read that Gregory Peck and Richard Donner like got in an actual argument like for an entire day about how to shoot this scene. And Peck wanted to like explode and have this fit of anger and throw shit around the room and everything else. And Donner basically just told him, no, we're going to shoot it this way. And eventually Peck kind of sort of came around once he saw the dailies. But it's just kind of a quiet moment where he breaks down. But this definitely, again, like further pushes him toward resolve of this is for sure what's happening. And he just is further convinced of what's going on. So from here, Robert and Keith actually travel to Israel and they find this archaeologist guy named Carl Bugenhagen and they go there specifically because it's like around the city of Megiddo which is from all the legends dealing with the Antichrist and everything else. They go there and talk to this archaeologist guy because he's an expert on all this lore and he basically just tells them like, yo, the 666 thing is a birthmark. Damien will have a birthmark. Robert's like, yo, I've bathed this kid. I know him inside now. He doesn't have it. He's like, oh, well, it might be under his hair. He also says, hey, here's all these magic daggers that you need. Um, and there's like six daggers, and it's kind of the Voldemort thing of, yeah, you can stab him with the first one. It's going to kill his mortal body, but you have to also stab him with the other six to, like, definitively kill the spirit of evil as well. So he gives him all these daggers just kind of wrapped up in a cloth. And Jennings was told to, like, leave, you know, and leave the room at the time. Once they leave, he's pestering Robert about, hey, what did he tell you? What's going on? Like, I'm involved in this. You have to tell me what's happening. And Robert basically just freaks out and just says, he wants me to fucking kill this kid. I can't do that. That's Despite all this weird shit, like, I can't fucking kill a kid. He wants me to stab him with these knives. Like, it's super fucked up. And he just says, like, to hell with this and throws the bundle of knives down the street. Just, like, hooks them. And... Jennings is like, fine, well, I definitely believe in all this shit, and I don't give a fuck, man. I will kill this kid. So he goes to pick up the knives, and in one of the best death scenes ever, one of the most ridiculous Rube Goldberg bullshit deaths, (laughs) um, Jennings is digging through the dirt to pick up all these knives and bundle them back up, and he's kind of at the bottom of a hill a little bit, and we see this work truck parked at the top of the hill, and the work truck has all these big panes of glass, like 
window panes in the back, right? And the worker guy gets out and his leg accidentally like brushes the e-brake loose. And as soon as he shuts the door, the truck starts rolling backwards. And just as the truck gets close and Jennings realizes and turns around and like looks at the truck, the truck fucking hits the curb and immediately like stops. But the big giant pane of glass keeps going from inertia and fucking slices Jennings' head off and then smashes through a window in the building behind him. And it's all done in slow motion to where you see this giant pane of glass just zipping through his body with his fake head rolling and bouncing across the top of the glass (laughs) as it's shattering in its window. And it's one of the most insane practical effects deaths. Mm -hmm. Um, This is one of the reasons why I got into this movie when I was a kid because I used to watch all these weird like TV specials on like you know how they did these special effects and everything else and this is one that I remember seeing this movie was on TV I would like throw it on and wait just to see that scene of this decapitation because it was just gnarly but also one of the most ridiculously fun again just Rube Goldberg ridiculous deaths. Uh, To go back to Father Brennan's death by impaling and then his death here these guys were meant to die because they had a good like five to six seconds to move the fuck out of the way. They saw their own death coming at themselves for a good five, six seconds. It's like the Monty Python and the Holy Grail thing where Sir Galahad or whichever one it was is just like riding up from the distance and you just like see him like five times and he's just keep going. The priest was just looking up at the sky, ah, screaming. It cuts back to the pole falling, cuts back to the priest, ah, continuing to scream. And he could just take like one step to the left and he'd be fine. (laughs) So yeah, same thing. Brandon could have just done like the laziest fat guy barrel roll like I would have done and he would have been okay. (laughs) Anyway, now Keith is dead. This again, like kind of further pushes Robert to be like, all right, cool. I believe again, I got to do this. So he gets the knives, he flies back. And as soon as he gets home, he kind of gets back to the house and he creeps his way through. He hears one of the Rottweilers manages to like trick it into going into the basement and shuts the doors. He goes upstairs and finds Damien asleep. He had snuck into his wife's room and had a brief moment where he, like, looked at her photo and, like, looked at the bed that they shared. And he digs out a little pair of cutting snips from her jewelry case. And he goes into the bedroom where Damien's asleep and just looks through his scalp a little bit and finds an odd spot and snips the hair away around it. And, of course, dun-dun-dun, finds the 666 birthmark. And right as he is about to, like, grab Damien and bundle him up, wham, out of nowhere, Miss Blaylock, like, in her pajamas, jumps on him and is just clawing at him and tearing at him. And this is probably the biggest jump scare of the movie. Oh yeah. This whole five minutes leading up to it is dead Super silent. quiet. Yeah. yeah. There's even a moment when he's creeping into Damien's room off to the side where Miss Baylock sleeps. He sees her in her bed and he kind of like slowly shuts the door to her room. Yeah. And then like yeah out of nowhere she just attacks him from the darkness. This made me jump pretty good. Yeah. But eventually they have like a big fight. He throws her off. She's seemingly out of it. He carries Damien downstairs. Again, Miss Baylock pops back up. They fight a little bit more, and he manages to, like, turn the knife around on her and stab her in the neck. He takes her out, puts Damien in the car, speeds off. Yeah, and he has to stab Damien on hollowed ground, so he has to bring him to a church to do it. Yeah, so he blasts through the front gates of his mansion, and there's armed guards and police and stuff there, and immediately they were just like, the fuck is going on? The ambassador 
that are just blasted out of his house going a gajillion miles an hour, you know, and there was a disturbance at the house, so something's going on. So they immediately, like, notify all the police, and all these police start trying to find him and converging on him. But eventually, Thorne gets to the church and brings Damien inside, puts him on the altar, and breaks out the knives and is going to stab him. And in that moment, that's where Damien finally, like, puts on the, like, cute, innocent little kid. No, Daddy, no, no, leave me alone, Daddy. And he, you know, immediately, like, has that pause moment of, like, uh, oh, fuck. Wait, Rookie mistake. I'm about to kill rookie him. Mistake, yeah, yeah, but yeah, rookie mistake. Like, nah, just do it, son. And, of course, the police kick down the front doors right then, and they just see, like, this crazy guy with a kid that he's about to stab in a church. And they're like, you know, put the knife down, or we're gonna shoot. And, of course, he, like, in, you know, slow motion, like, throws that knife in a stabbing motion downward. The police fire, and then it just kind of fades into this funeral where there are two people being buried dot 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 and they're getting the whole like 21 gun salute burial and we realize oh Robert was killed Catherine obviously was killed and a like secret service agent walks up to you know this couple that you see from behind you don't really see who they are and he's just like Mr. President we're ready to go and the camera tilts downward and you see Damien hanging out with the president and the first lady and he turns around and gives that evil kid smile and then you know we cut to like a verse from revelations about the antichrist so dun 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 (laughs) end of movie what a like for such a kind of a more quiet low-key horror movie what a way to end with the antichrist i guess hinted at that he's adopted by the president of the united states well the wild thing is originally it was going to end with Thorn going through with it and actually killing him and the MPAA was just like yo you can't fucking kill a kid in this movie <laughs> and they were like but he's the antichrist and they're like still you can't kill a kid in this movie or you're, like we're gonna give you an X like no and so they're like okay alright fine and so we have the ending we have now which is super dark but it yeah. falls right in line with Rosemary's baby it's the same thing you know I kind of like that the dad's death is the only one that we don't see because like yeah. in that kind of confusion you're like, did Damien die? Did the dad die? And it's answered for you pretty quickly, but there's still what happened mystery that's kind of cool. Like the first time you're watching it, you have that adrenaline where it doesn't go away. You know, you're just like still holding onto that adrenaline until you see Damien and you're like, oh man. Yeah. And another one of the like signs in the lore was that the Antichrist would essentially come to power through politics specifically. So the fact that it looks like like he's now being cared for by the president and the first lady like oh no dun 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 so the sequels kind of take it from there obviously yeah I was gonna ask y'all doesn't he become a politician as well but also is like a serial killer on the side sort of thing the second movie he's like at a military academy kind mm-hmm. of it's it's like one of these prestigious schools for young boys but it's like a military prestige kind of academy thing and people around right. him are dying as they like think that they're finding out who he is. Right, and it does play with the trope of maybe it's not him. Yeah. Maybe this coincidence of awful things is happening near him, but it's it's him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> 
The third movie, definitely, like I mentioned, is just Sam Neill grown as Damien, really legitimately getting into politics. And then the fourth movie was a made-for-TV movie where a little girl is now, like, a new reincarnation of the Antichrist. I have, I've never actually seen that one. I know the third one ends with him finally getting stabbed with the knives. Yeah. He sees an image of Jesus and says, you have won nothing and then dies. Yeah. There's a really cheap Blu-ray box set that's been out for years. And I have not bought it because I've heard that the transfers on it are fucking terrible. So like I mentioned earlier, I'm going to get the Scream Factory one when it comes out. But the box set that's currently out, you can get for like 10 bucks, And I think you can find that at like Walmart and most Best Buys. But it has one through three in the remake. But like I mentioned, I've never seen four. Four is like the made-for-TV one that I haven't seen. So I have no idea. Like I've heard nothing but bad things about it. But I'm still going to watch it eventually just because. There were also actual novels in this series. So David Seltzer that wrote the screenplay wrote the novel adaptation at the same time. And there's some extra stuff in the novelization that didn't make it into the actual screenplay, but he went on to do the novelizations of 2 and 3 as well, and then there is a fourth one that is called The Omen for the Abomination. And that one, again, goes kind of wild in, like, a very blue kind of way. The woman that Damien has a one-night stand with in The Omen 3 then, like, gives birth to like the beast the abomination and the fourth book is basically about that literally like Ragnarok kicking in ultimately and you know Armageddon coming so even though yeah he dies at the end of the third one the whole like thing still goes into effect from there so well so this joke or this little bit I'm about to say is major spoilers for Game of Thrones the end of Game of Thrones so if you haven't watched the end of Game of Thrones skip ahead but uh, this movie ended the way I wanted Game of Thrones then I wanted Game Thrones since like everyone hated the second to last episode. I wanted the last episode to just completely jump the shark and lean into like ridiculousness. Yeah, Bran take the throne, all that stuff. But then the last shot is it looks like winter has passed. But then he looks at the camera and his eyes glaze <laughs> over blue, blue like the Night King. Yeah. And he winks at the camera. That's the way I wanted it to end. He just like, pulls a thriller out. and turns around and just like, hey, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. uh, dear Lord. Well, Chris, do you have any final thoughts on the omen? I think it kind of like started my kind of interest in real practical effects blood and gore and murder. Yeah. I explored that a little bit as a career five or six years ago. Decided I didn't like the schedule of people who work on movies. So. <laughs> yeah, that's a good reason. Right. But like, it's just so endlessly interesting to me and still is on like productions where people do commit to using more practical effects because the bounds we've made with CGI is great. But for me, for like specifically like human injury based horror it's just not nearly as good as practical effects can be well yeah and it's almost like we're coming back around to where cgi has become such a big thing that's in everything it's oversaturated to now where when movies use as much practical effects as they possibly can it actually looks better yeah it's almost like cgi has become so good and so oversaturated that it's now like that's unrealistic looking i'm glad that no they totally dress up what's as fuck as it 
it in the new It movies. Yeah. Like any chance they can get him in that clown costume, he is in that full getup in the clown paint and everything. They're not CGIing that. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen the newest season of Stranger Things, but it did a little bit more CGI this year than it had previously because it got a little bit more body horror alien esque inspired. Right. But they still like for those close up gross out body horror moments, a lot of that was still practical and it was disgusting and great and I loved it. Yeah, it's very interesting that this was one of the first movies that you took away the effect of practical effects on horror just because I never even really considered that until you mentioned it now that I'm thinking back on the movie. I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. A lot of the effects and the practical uses they make in this movie are pretty great. Especially seeing The Exorcist right before this movie because I feel like for The Exorcist time, it did some really interesting things, but I don't think that those things held up nearly as well as the sequences in The Omen. No, I I think I would agree with you. I haven't watched Exorcist in a few years, so I'd have to go back and watch it, but I think you're right. Ultimately, the Omen's one that I look back on that movie with some nostalgia and fun, because like I mentioned, it's one that I remember watching a lot as a kid since it was on cable, and I mean, I still find it to be fun and entertaining, and as I've gotten older, like I appreciate the ambiguity to the psychology of the movie a lot more than I did, and again, like we said, the death gimmicks in this movie are bananas, so that's always kind of fun to watch in a weird, fucked up way. Well, and I'm glad that it continues, like, I guess, into the second movie, because you you told me to look up that clip of the elevator death, yes. and I am so glad I did, because it is just as ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, from a spectacle special effects standpoint, it's bananas, so. But yeah. Legitimately creepy movie, though. Yeah. And uh, this is probably the, I guess, most famous or infamous movie we've done since Texas Chainsaw, so thank you, Crystal, for coming on. This is a yeah, extra definitely. long, extra special episode, so uh, it was nice to have you on for this one. Definitely. Thank y'all for asking me. Yeah, definitely. So, I think that's going to be it for this week. Do we have anything that we want to, like, plug or pitch coming up anytime soon? Crystal, do you want to plug anything before we plug our stuff? Yeah, I mean, you do theater-related stuff. Do you have anything coming up, or do you want to, like, promote any of your, like, side gigs? Yeah, um, so I do hand embroidery and sell stuff on Etsy under Nasty Threads. I am not going to do any shows around Halloween this year, but I am going to have some, like, horror-related embroidery stuff that I'm kind of excited about, like, mixing, like, gross with something that's as, I guess, seen as grandmotherly as embroidery. I think it's going to be a fun kind of mishmash of that. Shit, yeah. I'm going I'm to have to check out your uh, store then <laughs> yeah. around Halloween. Absolutely. She made me some really cute Universal Monsters embroideries that I have hanging up in my closet right now. She got me those for Christmas. So they're they're yeah. very cool. Listeners, go check out Nasty Threads on Etsy and go buy some stuff. But yeah, we are Watch If You Dare, the podcast. We are on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Podcoin. Um, we are at Watch If You Dare on Twitter and Facebook. Please continue to uh, rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's where we've gotten most of our reviews from, and it's really helpful. Thank you once again to the Twitter podcast community. Y'all are fantastic and extremely friendly and helpful. And once again, shout out to your brother, Jesse, aka Party Gator, for our opening and closing themes of the show. Yep, yep. So that's it for this week. Hope y'all have a spooptastic week going forward, and we will catch you next time. Maybe uh, Ave Sally. Ave Sally Moose. <laughs> we'll have to explain that one to you off air, Crystal, but yeah, yeah. either way. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> All right. Later, y'all. Bye. <laughs> Ave Sally Moose.